I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Christmas. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. A high school girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Hello? <laughs> what are you doing? Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Ho, ho, ho. Tis the season, Parallax Views listeners, to crack out that eggnog, nestle up by the fireplace, and watch a true Christmas classic, or maybe anti-Christmas classic, Bob Clark's 1974 chiller, Black Christmas. It's annual holiday viewing for me in the same way that Die Hard is annual holiday viewing for many action movie fans. And now we can not only enjoy the original Black Christmas, but also a professionally done fan sequel made almost 50 years later. Last year, Bruce Dill and Dave McRae brought us It's Me, Billy, a short film that sought to honor Black Christmas and add to its mythology at the same time. It's one of a number of fan flicks, such as Vincent DeSanti's Never Hike Alone, 
and the Friday the 13th Vengeance duology that are challenging perceptions about what a fan film can manage to be in the 21st century. Joining us to discuss, it's me, Billy, and the greatness of the creepy classic that is 1974's Black Christmas is the aforementioned Dave McRae. It's me, Billy's co-director and co-writer. If you've never seen Black Christmas before, well, you should rectify that. It's definitely a slow burn horror that I would argue serves as a masterclass in how to build suspense. Moreover, it's an important precursor to films that would follow, such as When a Stranger Calls and, of course, John Carpenter's Halloween. We'll discuss that more in the conversation to follow, as well as getting some details on the making of It's Me, Billy. Dave and I also managed to discuss his career in voice acting and the upcoming Nightmare on Elm Street fan film he'll be playing Freddy Krueger in called Dylan's New Nightmare, which will act as a direct sequel to Wes Craven's New Nightmare, a film that broke the mold of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and the horror genre more generally by going in a meta direction that Craven would later famously revisit in Scream. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Dave McRae. Welcome to Parallax Views. Dave McRae, who has a really great YouTube channel covering all kinds of horror movies, especially uh, the Halloween series, uh, and also the director of the fan film It's Me, Billy, which is a fan film based on the great 1974 Canadian horror classic Black Christmas. Tis the season to be watching that movie. It's annual viewing for me. So we're going to be talking about Black Christmas and It's Me, Billy, on this edition of the show. How are you doing, Dave? I am doing well. Just one thing I want to add, it, uh, it, I'm co-director. I got to give some love to my buddy, my buddy uh, Bruce, of course, who is my co-director, co-producer, and co-writer. So it is a definitely a collaboration. But uh, but yes, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. My, my, uh, my apologies for not... Uh, getting that right that you uh could no, no, no. It. that's okay <laughs> i feel no unprofessional worries. now <laughs> no, <laughs> but... no 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 you're good you're good it happens it happens it happens it happens it's okay <laughs> so uh dave maybe you could give a little bit of background on yourself because i know you're also uh, a voice actor and you've done some interesting voice acting gigs so how did you get into voice acting yeah, so that's my primary job. Um, so, uh, I mean, not my primary job, it is my job. <laughs> um, so uh, that is what I am. I'm a professional voice actor. Um, I got into the entertainment industry uh, I, I, just after college in 2001. I actually went to film school in the late 90s. I wanted to be a filmmaker. That's what I wanted to do. But I'm a very extroverted person and I'm a very, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a performer as well. And I've done theater and I've done uh on camera acting and so you know the 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 uh uh the acting uh 
bug and buzz has always been there for me. Uh, and that's where I sort of started. After I left film school, I began sort of an on-camera acting career. I was auditioning for commercials and docudramas and all that kind of stuff. And then in and around 2003 or four, I broke my teeth playing street hockey. It's a very Canadian thing. I'm Canadian for your listeners who may not know uh, from Toronto. And uh, I uh, had to go on a, a little bit of a hiatus until I got my uh, teeth fixed. And I was doing voiceover work in the meantime. And I had done some voiceover work before through college, high school, things like that, but never at a professional level until I started to you know, do um, until I started to do it while I was waiting for my teeth to be fixed. And the rest is history. I, I sort of fell into it. I loved it. Um, I've had great success at it, uh, which I'm very, very thankful for. And um, yeah, I'm always... I'm trying to think of of certain things that maybe your listeners might know. I've I've spent the vast majority of my career as a voice actor uh, in the commercial and promo and trailer side. So I've just started over the last five or six years or so to really kind of try to beef up the animation side of my portfolio, which has been great. But I've done everything from yeah, you know, trailers, commercials, promo, some of the movie trailers I've done um, are It Chapter One, The Crazies, The Descent, Lego Batman. Um, now, again, I'm not the only voice actor that does it, uh, but certainly I was very fortunate to be uh, part of those campaigns, which is great. Um, but all sorts of just commercial work and and network promos and narration and all that kind of stuff. Your now, I was going to say, didn't, did you do narration for a, uh, a show on either history channel or discovery or something like that. I thought I'd read that somewhere. Uh, I have done some work for discovery, but not, uh, not a, a, a show. Um, it was, it was some promo work that I did for discovery years ago. Um, but a lot of the narration work I've done is for Canadian television shows here in Canada. So, uh, there's an American show called four weddings and we had one called four weddings, Canada. And, uh, and I did, uh, there was one called Risky Business, not the Tom Cruise film, but a, a, a show all about sort of, um, uh, I forget what the show was about now, but uh, something to do with with finance and, and taking risks and all that kind of stuff. And and um, uh, I narrated the uh, two seasons of a show called Final 24, um, which was a lot of fun. Uh, it was the final 24 hours of of uh, a celebrity's life who had you know passed away and all that kind of stuff so i mean it's it's been a hell of a ride i've i've been nominated for four voice arts awards which is a huge sort of you know um award in the voice acting world and uh i've met all sorts of people and the one thing that is really cool when you work in the entertainment industry is that the entertainment industry is a very big industry, but it's a very small industry as well. And, you know, there's so many different facets of the entertainment industry, you know, so I'm on the voiceover side predominantly, but of course there's, you know, the on-camera acting side, there's the filmmaking side, there's the studio executive side, there's the music side of the entertainment industry. And if you are in the business long enough and you develop any sort of success, uh, you do get a chance to meet all sorts of different people. You cross paths, you know, along the way. So it's been really cool to meet 
uh, all different kinds of people, you know, on the voice, you know, on the VO side of things, but also on on camera filmmaking, all that kind of stuff, and learn from other people who are professionals in their own craft. And uh, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. It's been uh, it's been a heck of a ride. So that's that's uh, in a nutshell the Cliff Notes version. Uh, that is who I am uh, and what I've been doing for most of my life. I just wanted to ask uh, one more question about the voice acting mm -hmm. uh, because I've always wondered: uh, is it something that is it a skill you have to hone over time? Um, for you, was it just something that came naturally? I'm just curious about all well, of that. I, sure, I, I do think there is a natural talent. Um, you know, I know that sounds like a cop out to say, but there are people in this world that are born with just natural gifts, whether that's, you know, just, um, uh, an incredible athlete, you know, whether that's just, you know, whatever it is, it's there, there are people that just are born with the it factor. And I've often said that you can teach technique, but you can't teach talent. You either have it or you don't. That doesn't mean that you can't get better and you can't hone your skills, but there are certain people that will always just excel and exceed at something because of their natural abilities or their personality or like, you know, whatever the case is. In the terms of voiceover, one of the biggest misconceptions is that if you have a great sounding voice, you will be uh, successful in the world of voiceover. And although, you know, I'm sure there are people that do have great sounding voices who ride a wave to success based on that alone, but generally speaking, that's not true. Uh, it's not really about you know, the sound of your voice, it's how good of an actor are you? How well can you take direction? How well can you interpret a script, right? You are you are an actor, you're a voice actor, but you're an actor, you're an actor behind the microphone, whether you're doing animation, promos, trailers, you know, uh, commercials, whatever the case is, you're an actor. I, I was gonna so, say too, it's a very interesting type of acting because, you know, I, I think sometimes people forget, most actors are having to work with uh, facial expressions and body movements, whereas a voice actor, you have to convey everything through that you do, voice. Yeah, for sure. And 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 it all depends on the part you're playing, right? In the world of animation, in the world of animation and cartoons, excuse me, um, you know that is where you will see probably the the most acting, quote unquote, if you will, in terms of performance, because you are playing characters, right? You're not just doing funny voices, you are building entire characters around those voices. So usually the character comes first and then the voice will follow. Um, uh, and so in the world of animation, yes, if you ever watch an animation VO actor perform, you know, it's it's not very flattering, <laughs> you know, because you you are really getting into it. You're doing all sorts of crazy facial expressions and all that kind of stuff because you need to convey the nuances and the idiosyncrasies that you would normally pick up by watching an actor. You have to convey that through the microphone with your voice. And uh, so it can be a very, very, very tricky thing. But whether you're doing commercials or trailers or promos or narration, you are always on some level playing some sort of fictional version of yourself. You are acting always to some degree. And um, so it really is about your performing and acting ability. So I often say to people who want to get into the VO world that if you've never taken um, 
if you're new and you don't know what to do, take an acting class, learn the art of acting, learn the art of performance, learn to step out of your comfort zone. Uh, and then you can think about taking a voiceover class and, you know, um, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not easy. I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, it's been great. It's what cool. out of curiosity is your favorite, um, you know, like, like, favorite impression or favorite voice that you like to do or a character that you may have developed? Well, I'm not, okay. So I'm not an impressionist. Um, right. I, you know, there, you do, there are. You do do a pretty good Dr. Loomis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's a caricature version of him. Right. Um, but yeah, so there are, there are impressionists who, who do amazing impressions, right. Who can talk like, you know, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whoever. And they don't just do their catchphrases. They talk like them for like 15 minutes without breaking character. And if you close your eyes and you just, you know, I mean, you would think that they're in the room, right? That's a real talent. That's a real skill. That's a true impressionist. In terms of voiceover and characters, um, I, I would say that one of my favorites is probably, is probably just my, you know, it's not really a, um, a, um, a character with a specific identity. Although I would say that um, it would just be my old man voice. And it is something that, uh, like I said a few moments ago, just in the last five years, I've begun to, you know, try to build up the animation side of my voiceover portfolio. And I'm on two series right now where I use that voice for two completely different characters. And, um, you know, it, it's just a, but it's a voice, I, it's a nondescript, like it's just an old man voice. I know years ago, people thought I was doing Grandpa Simpson, uh, but it, it's not. It, it, that's not where, you know, it uh, comes from at all. And I don't really think it sounds like Grandpa Simpson, although there's similarities. Um, but it's just it's just a voice that I I just, you know, it's it, it's fun and it's natural. It's fun. I could I could talk like him for like, you know, five are, hours. Are you able to do the voice? I'm just curious. I, I don't want to like put you on the spot. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yes, I can. But you see, <laughs> there's this thing, JG, that you have to understand about this show. You see, you have to really get into it. All right. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm just going to go over here and take a swig of this liquor. <laughs> <laughs> That was good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's a voice that I started. Again, it's it's that nondescript general sort of old man crazy voice or whatever, right? And I I started perfecting that when I was a teenager, you know, and and it's just fun to do. Now, when I was a teenager, he was a little dirty, you know, and he was a little crass. Uh the two shows that I'm on right now, not so much because they're children's shows, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but still it's, it's been fun to do that. So I would say that, that that's always a fun voice to do because it's, I'm so comfortable with it. So moving from voice acting to the great Christmas classic or anti-Christmas classic, Black Christmas, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, for me, for people that don't know, I've been a huge fan of Black Christmas uh, for years. I've interviewed Lynn Griffin last year about, her role she's in the movie. Wonderful. Oh yeah, I mean, she's one of my favorite parts of the movie, even though she's only really in the first act. But she's uh, so people, important. Oh yeah, uh, she's pivotal to the movie, key mm -hmm. to it. Uh, but for people that don't know, Black Christmas is sort of like a the old urban legend about you know the caller is calling you from in the house and you're being stalked, right? Uh, but how did you first discover Black Christmas? I always find it interesting how people discover these classics. 
That's a very good question. Um, I think being Canadian, uh, Black Christmas, of course, was shot here in Toronto. It's a Canadian film. Now, like a lot of Canadian movies, uh, they're shot here, but they're supposed to take place in the States. And that is uh, the same with Black Christmas as well. If you pay close attention to the police station, there's a lot of American flags on the desks and in the corner and all that kind of stuff. And certainly not so much now, but certainly back then, if you wanted to have any chance of your Canadian film getting distributed in the United States, you had to pretend that it it took place in the U.S. It's it's a, I don't know if it's an inferiority complex thing or what's going on, but uh, for whatever reason, and Hollywood for you know the most part is still like this. They still feel that for whatever reason, if it's set in Canada with Canadian actors, it you know the Americans aren't going to give a shit. I don't know. Maybe it's true. I have no idea. But um, so it's a Canadian movie shot in Toronto. There's a large Canadian cast, although not everybody is Canadian, um, and it was one of the first movies of its kind to depict, if not the first major feature, uh, to depict the urban legend of the calls are coming from within the house. Now, the American audience would probably know that most from When a Stranger Calls, uh, but Black Christmas, and that came out in 1979, uh, I think it was 79, but Black Christmas predates that by five years. And so it was a similar thing. And I, I think just growing up, I was born in Toronto, spent the first 10 years of my life here, moved away for a bit, came back. And I think I think it's just sort of in the culture. And I, I think we I think I just some, maybe saw it on TV one night or something. Or I remember renting it with my friends from the video store um, in the 90s and watching it because they hadn't seen it. And, you know, when the eye scene comes up, everyone's like, ah, you know, and uh, so it was just a lot of fun. It was just, I, I can't remember specifically the first time I watched it, but it was, I think it was just because it was in the culture and everybody gets around to it at, at some point, I think. I, I was going to say, so it, it does sound like maybe it's, um, I mean, I think it's, it has a cult following in the US, but maybe it has cult following in Canada that maybe it's a little bit more well-known. I think it's a little bit more well-known, but it's still a cult film. Um, it, 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 it has always been, and I think it is largely because it never spawned a series. Uh, it never spawned any sequels. Uh, well, I mean, you know, until we came along, but it never, it never spawned any, uh, official sequels. It had two remakes in 2006 and 2019, which were very different. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I think, you know, it came and it, went and um you know it 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 also too when it came out in 1974 here in Canada and then it was picked up by Warner Brothers in the US they changed the title to Silent Night Evil Night I was going to say when when it was in Canada was it called Silent Night Evil Night or no, 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 no. I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't born until 1979, but but I, I'm pretty sure when it was here, it was Black Christmas. Um, but Warner Brothers, for whatever reason, and I understand, again, you have to think of the time period, right? 1974, 75. Um, they were worried that, you know, people were going to think that it was a black a black exploitation film, right? And uh, Black Christmas, you know? And so they changed the title to Silent Night, Evil Night. And I believe if you look hard enough, you can find that that classic black Christmas poster with our good friend Lynn on the cover in the bag with the title saying Silent Night, Evil Night. Um, they are out there. and uh, But then it was changed 
and then I think also somewhere around the late 70s for its network premiere, I think they were going to call it like The Stranger in the House or something like that. But then my details on this are a little hazy, but it's something like this. But then it was pulled from network television because that was in and around the same time that, um, um, oh, who's that guy that, God, he just, um, I almost forget his name now. He was a murderer that the, um, not Dahmer, but the um, the guy that uh, Zach Efron oh Bundy played Bundy. Yes, thank you. Um, he that was in and around um the time that Bundy was 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 doing his thing and breaking into sorority houses and or or college dorms or like what have you. So I I believe they thought you know what this is probably not a good idea to to play. So it's it's run in the U.S was had interruptions you know and 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 it was difficult i think to now it did i think it made you know okay money you know it made a few million bucks on like a six hundred and forty thousand dollar budget um but it never and it was known ish you know it kind of was there but it because it never spawned a series and because it was five years or six years really before the boom of the slasher subgenre um halloween sort of kicked it off but it wasn't in really halloween kicked it off but friday the 13th blew the doors open and then once friday the 13th blew you know or the doors off the hinges in terms of that first film in 1980 then you started to get all those b movies you know that we've never heard of even to this day and all that and then you know along came so i, I it and because it never had any sequels like i said um i think it just kind of nestled into not obscurity, but into sort of just kind of in the background and, Oh yeah. Oh, that movie. Yeah. 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 I remember that, you know, and it never really kind of embedded itself in the pop culture zeitgeist like the other more popular films did. Yeah. I was just going to add to that. I think the other thing about black Christmas is, well, first it, it's got an interesting cast and crew, right? You have Bob Clark before he's doing movies like Christmas story and Porky's. Mm -hmm. uh, then you have Olivia Hiasi and, uh, Margot Kidder, John Saxon, Kier Delay from 2001: A Space Odyssey. So hell of a it's, cast. Yeah, it's a hell of a cast. And also, I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it, in a way, it's a very weird movie because it's hard to pin down at times. Because on one hand, it is a very slow burn horror movie. Uh, it's very different from the kind of gory slasher movies that we got in the 80s. But on the other hand, it's got a lot of just crude humor in it. You know, Margot mm -hmm. uh, uh, Margot Kidder is like feeding kids alcohol in it. And you have the, Oh yeah. You, yep. you have the um, head of the household, the head of the sorority house, uh, you know, taking alcohol out of a, Oh, the, uh, the back of the toilet. Yeah. The back of the toilet. I don't know why my brain <laughs> farted there, but yeah, I <laughs> yeah. mean, there's all this comedy in it, uh, yeah, but it's is. also just a disturbing movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, it is. There, there's, there's a lot of, uh, cheeky it's almost i think they're 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 cheeky little things they're they're bob clark things you know i think bob clark had a very cheeky dry witty sense of humor and he liked to instill that and 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 that's fine and and it is a, and and that's another thing too going back to why it hasn't endured sort of you know as popular as the other films i mean you know you could i think there is an argument to be made that if halloween maybe not halloween because it it 
became the highest grossing independent movie in history at that time. Um, but certainly something like Friday the 13th or, you know, I don't know, Elm Street, Child's Play. If those movies never spawned a franchise and they were just that one movie, that one movie only, I think there is an argument to be made that they too would maybe be a little more popular because of where they landed in the rise of the slasher subgenre. But it, it really, see, it's it's the multiple sequels that keep you know, these franchises and characters top of mind and keep them current and in the pop culture. But if you just have one movie that comes and goes, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard and, 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 and it is a slow burn. Black Christmas is a very, very slow burn. There's a lot of people, there's usually two camps when it comes to this movie. There's people that really love it. And there's people that think it's a snooze fest. Yeah. I, and, I was going to say, I think you and I view it as like, you know, a, a, a true classic of its genre. Hundred uh, percent. I'm surprised. I've met people in the past few years who are like, "I hate that movie. I can't watch mm -hmm. it. It's too slow." I mean, I love it, but I didn't realize there are people that are like not fans of it. Oh yeah, for sure. And you can tell that they definitely will not contribute to our Indiegogo campaign. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, you're you're right, and and I acknowledge that. Like, I mean, when I watch it. You know, I can certainly tell that it's dated and it's slower. Now, the slow burn is intentional. I do believe that that the slow burn is a conscious creative choice to build that tension, to draw it out. Um, but, you know, in terms of the production value and a little bit of the acting here or there, it's dated, but it's no more dated than the original Halloween. The original Halloween is my favorite horror movie of all time. But listen, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it ain't dated. It's dated, you know, but there's but. There's certain things about it that still stand the test of time, which is what you know what makes it so rewatchable. And I think, I think those qualities are are in Black Christmas as well. And Black Christmas predates Halloween by four years. Right, you know, and both and, films and use that famous point of view of the killer shot. Hundred percent, yeah. Black Christmas was one of the first to do it. You know, and and um, uh, John Carpenter. I mean, there's that famous story that Bob Clark told before he died that John Carpenter asked, and I'm paraphrasing all this, but he asked him, you know, if you were ever going to do a sequel to Black Christmas, what would you do? And this is according to Bob Clark himself, uh, this conversation happened. And he said, oh, well, I, I don't know. I'd probably set it a year later and he escapes out of a mental institution and I would set it on Halloween. Now, whether that conversation happened verbatim like that who knows maybe bob clark was just kind of selling it but even bob clark said listen i'm not saying that john carpenter copied my idea he made it his i mean you think about the music and the mask and that you know everything that came with halloween that's all john I mean, that's all john um but was john carpenter inspired whether consciously or subconsciously i don't know who knows he wrote it with deborah hill i mean who knows how much of that because also too Erwin Yablons, who was the producer on Halloween, uh, it was his idea to set the movie on Halloween. So had he not brought it to John Carpenter's attention, Carpenter may never have set it on Halloween to begin with. So again, who knows what's true and what isn't, but um, it's fascinating for sure. So I know you're really big on mood and atmosphere. Uh, yes. So let's talk about what are some of the points in the film where you think the mood and the atmosphere, just the overwhelming sense of dread and creepiness really uh, come out for you and stick out in your mind. In Black Christmas? Mm -hmm. I would say that um, certainly when we open the film and it's the POV shot and um, the camera operator is climbing the trellis and going into the attic, but he, you know, he's peering, Billy 
is peering into the window and you can hear kind of like, you know, the Christmas music inside and the girls walking by the windows, but they're, you know, the view is sort of obscure, um, obscured by the, the, you know, their curtains and, and there's, and, and there's this, just this sound, just the droning, just the ominous kind of sound that's outside and, and you kind of hear the breathing a little bit. And anytime that there's those piano scrapes and things like that, like anytime, whoa. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't have a traditional score, but no, the, the ambient no sort of sounds that are used in it are amazing. It's amazing. Absolutely incredible. And and it's the simplicity of it. And it's just, it's just ominous and, 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 and eerie. It's, it's eerie. And I think anytime that we are, in, that we are in a position on the screen or we, as a viewer are watching that moment on the screen, um, Billy's POV, wandering around, watching Jess from, you know, afar, you know, whatever the case is, there's just an eeriness to it. And, and I think anytime that you can, anytime you could, one thing that Black Christmas does, it's a dated film, yes. But one thing that it does very well is that it takes itself seriously. So there's a lot of Christmas horror movies that come out that are tongue in cheek because they realize the juxtaposition of something awful happening at Christmas. Like it's usually like a, you know, it's, it's, it's like a silent night, deadly night, right. Or it's a, or it's a, uh, you know, a, a, yeah, a comedy like bad Santa, you know, or, or, or gremlins or Krampus or gremlins yeah. or yeah. Like, like it's never, I'm, I'm not saying never, but, but black Christmas plays it serious, plays it straight. You know, and it, it's not, I mean, yes, there's some, you know, there's some little funny lines in there, but in terms I, I of the actual- add, I remember, hmm. I will never forget when I saw the the scene with Margot Kidder telling the police officer, oh yeah, fellatio, that's the, that's the phone right. you have to call. And <laughs> yes. just, just seeing the, uh, the other cops laugh at him because he doesn't know yes. what fellatio means. I mean, there, yes. there's funny moments in it, but those 100%. moments are very separate from the horrific moments. Correct. So, right. Because, because what Bob Clark has done, what they've done and uh, Roy Moore, I believe the other writer is they, they, when it comes to the scary stuff, they play it straight. So the killer is not satirical. The killer is not, you know, uh, somebody in a Santa suit who's like, it's, it's, it, it, they, they play it straight. And I, and, and I think that's why there's this, you really feel the eeriness of that juxtaposition. You know, you really feel, you feel the warmth of the holiday. You, you, you feel the carolers, right? You hear the carolers, you see the snow, you feel the environment as you're watching it. And then when we get to those eerie moments, it works so well because you really feel that contrast um, and it's eerie. Well, and especially I think when it, you have like the carolers, I'm, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you have the carolers singing while murders right. are happening and muffling right. the sound. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So I, I think f for me anyway, I, I think it's it's largely because they play it straight. They're not playing it off as sort of a, um, I don't want to say that there's there, there's not serious Christmas horror movies, but, you know, whether it's Krampus or whether it's you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night or Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. I mean, I would never look at those. I mean, they're, they're just cheesy B horror movies, you know, whereas Black Christmas, it's a B horror movie too, but it's, yeah, it just plays, it, it takes itself seriously. I was going to say, for me, there's two moments that always uh, scare the living crap out of me. And it's uh, the, the beginning. They're both in the beginning of the movie where you have mm. Lynn Griffin getting ready to leave 
And, you know, Bob Clark just builds up the tension because she sees something out of the corner of her eye. Right. She's like, Who That's is a great that? scene. Who is that? And maybe you uh, could talk a little bit about that scene because I've seen yes. you describe how effective it is. Yes, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, it, the the scene when Lynn is is uh, uh, up in the bedroom and she's getting ready to pack and head out. And she she it's I think it's the the cat, Claude, I think, makes its way into the closet or something. Or she thinks she hears the cat. And she looks over and she walks towards the closet and she's like, who is that? Claude? Who is that? There's just something about a character in this moment saying, who is that? You're in a room by yourself and you're saying the words, who is that? And yet we as the audience cannot see who you're referring to it's just eerie again it's it's an eerie statement who is that you know it like imagine being out in the woods and you're with your friend and it's nighttime and your friend turns to you and says hey dude gg who is that isn't that such a we it's 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 an uncomfortable eerie thing to say and you're like where what where over there, look, who is that? You know, and you're like, I, I can't see it. Who, who, I, what, what, what? Like, who, who is that? Like, a per it's just such an eerie statement. And the way that Claire sort of, you know, walks into the closet with trepidation and, and she's there and, and then all of a sudden Billy attacks her with the, you know, the dry cleaning bag and, and uh, it's, it's all drawn it's out just, before that, you know, it's the drawn scene is out. Like, oh, it for sure. Like maybe three to five minutes, but it takes its time. No, yeah. it's like, it's like 30 seconds, but I mean, it, but, but, but it feels, or maybe a minute, but it, but you're right. It, it feels, feels longer. longer. Yeah. It feels yes. And uh, that's, that, that's a thank you for reminding me because that is one of my favorite moments in the whole film it is, it's just the eeriness of, it's so simple, but it's it's the eeriness. It's the, it's the it's the backdrop. It's 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 the presentation of something uh, uh, that something is not right. Set against the backdrop of that it appears normal. Like like this shouldn't. This is a normal bedroom. Things look normal. They're not out of place. It's not scary lighting. Do you know what I mean? It's not. There's no scary music. You know. There's. It's just. And that's why it works. That's why it works because it shouldn't be there. There's something wrong here and it shouldn't be like that. Yeah, very effective scene. And the eye scene, of course, at the very end. I mean, Jesus, it's, I mean, it's classic. Oh yeah, when Olivia's character, Jess, finds. Correct. Yeah. Correct, yeah. And she looks up and she sees the eye and she's like, it's me, Billy. It's just great. Why do you think that works so well? Because it is probably one of the most iconic moments in the film. I think it's because of how close we are. And I think it's, I think it's unexpected. I think, um, I think what it is 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 when Jess uh, sees her dead friends in the bed and, and she turns, we see her turn or um, avert her eyes to look up. The camera, do, we don't just cut to the eye. The camera, we cut close up to the door. And for just a couple of seconds, the camera is moving and it's moving up the door and then the eye comes into frame. So just those few seconds, your brain is having trouble processing the perspective of where, like, where are, like, where are we? Is this a close up? Is this a, you know, uh, you know, wide shot? Is it, well, I mean, you know, it's kind of obvious. It's not a wide shot, but, but in terms of how close we are to what we're about to see, we don't know. And then 
after just a second or two of the camera moving up to the eye, it's like, whoa, shit. Like we're taking, wow. Like it's just, it's just right there. It's just, and all we see is the eye. And, you know, and anytime you see just an eye that close moving around, your brain really focuses on the eyeball moving within the socket. And it's it, that in and of itself is just an eerie uh, illusion. <laughs> you know, it's not really an illusion, but an, an eerie thing to see, I guess. I was going to say the other part that always uh, scares me is the, yeah, it's in the beginning where, you know, Jess gets the phone call. She says, mm -hmm. oh, it's the moaner again. You know, right. and you just hear this obscene phone call where he's saying the nastiest things possible to these girls. And, right. you know, Margot Kidder ends up taking the phone and trying to tell the guy off. And yes. his voice is completely distorted throughout the whole thing, yelling obscenities. Mm -hmm. And then for that one moment, he just says, I'm going to kill you. And yes. Margot Kidder looks like she, or she changes for a moment, just a mm -hmm. split second where she's like, oh, this is serious. This I'm, I'm creeped out even. Um, yes, for me, yeah. that's one of the most effective moments in the film. Hundred percent, I agree. I agree. Yep. No, it was. It's it, again. It's that contrast, right? He's he's saying all these things, snorting like a pig, saying all these crass things, and and then he just says, "I'm going to kill you," you know, and then just hangs up. And it's like, and and why that works so well is because what that is communicating to the audience is that when you first pick up the phone and it's like, hey, it's the Mona, you know, and everyone comes over and, you know, they're circling around and it's all, you know, all this kind of stuff. It, it It's like, uh, you know, what it, and, and it's kind of uncomfortable. And it's kind of weird. But that voice, just that line, that 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 human voice, that voice that sounds normal is reminding you as the audience on the other end of this phone is just a man. And, and that it, it's not a monster, it's a man. And that's, that's scary. That's very scary. It's, it's not supernatural. This is a man. I was going to say too, uh, for you, when it comes to the strengths of the film, one of the things that I've always found interesting about it, and, and I think they completely ruined this in the 2006 remake, you know, you don't really know much about this obscene phone caller, Billy's, backstory i mean you're only getting hints of it you know like when he's he's mm. talking about agnes well who is agnes and then he's uh impersonating his mother and father you know and it's just really bizarre and nothing is ever really explained right right yeah no it's it's a it's a that's one of the that's one of the things that is most effective about that killer is that you don't know who he is you don't know why he's there you don't know why he's doing what he's doing you don't know where he comes from you get tidbits of information about Agnes and Agnes where's the baby where's the Billy where's the baby you know all this kind of stuff and 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 now Bob Clark is the director and the writer he sort of had it laid out in his own mind of what may be that backstory, but he doesn't need to uh, tell the audience that. Um, it is just, you know, it, it makes it far more effective that you don't know anything about this character. It's it's one of the reasons why Michael Myers is so popular because of the anonymity and the ambiguity of 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 the why. It's it's unknowable, you know, and it should remain that way. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's funny that because you're in voice acting. You know, this uh, movie in a lot of ways is like a crash course in voice acting, uh, you know, yeah. because he's constantly changing his voice. You know, when he does the mother's voice, what we must know is where is the baby? It's just that's like, right. It's so creepy right. because he's constantly adjusting the sound of his voice. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's creepy. And there were a few people. I mean, um, I think Bob Clark 
was in there somewhere. I think there might have even been a woman uh, at one point with a couple of lines. I can't remember now. I thought I heard Bob Clark say something like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely creepy and eerie. And, and although it sounds nonsensical and most of it is you drip feed in things that actually are coherent and, and are important to the plot of the story. And, and, uh, you know, it, it's not all, it's not as nonsensical as, as you might think if you're, you know, kind of not really paying attention. It, it all does mean something. So, before we move on to It's Me, Billy, and how that came about, I also wanted to ask you about uh, just the remakes that have been done. And I have to be honest, I I did not really like the remakes. Um, I thought it was admirable that, that the most recent remake wanted to do a story about strong female characters. Although I, I think that's in the original Black Christmas. I think I don't think it's a political film necessarily, but there is things in there about, you know, Jess wanting to have her autonomy when it comes to um, getting an abortion. And I, I think what makes the original Black Christmas work in a lot of ways is that you really become invested in all these mm -hmm. characters and they are strong female characters in a lot of ways. Uh, but Agree. I, what, what do you think about the, the remakes compared to the original? Well, the remakes, um, the 2006 remake, I was not a big fan of, although I do applaud uh, the taking the source material and making it your own it's 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 the same way that i do applaud rob zombie and what he did with halloween 07 although i don't like the movie at all it's just not for me right but in principle i say well he made it his own and he certainly didn't just do the same thing over again he took sort of the the dna and the and the you know sort of some 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 plot beats but he he tried to tell it in a bit of a different way in a in a rob zombie way and uh but i you know i i'm just not a big fan of the movie you know it just didn't work for me it's the same with black christmas 06 there's some good things in there i mean there's some nice shots or some nice moments you know what i mean like any bad movie or not say bad movie but uh any movie that maybe doesn't resonate with you i i find that i can always find some redeeming qualities you know in certain moments or shots or whatever and i feel that way about black christmas 06 but Black Christmas 06 is just a modern day slasher movie. So there's nothing subtle about it. There's nothing ambiguous about it. We know who Billy is. We know why he's, you know, the way he is. We know who Agnes yeah. is. <laughs> we know who Agnes is. Uh, we know that there's an incestual relationship happening. And we know, like, we we just know all this, all this. It's just, it's just all there. It's a, and I think for modern audiences or for a lot of people, they like that kind of thing. There's lots of people that love the 06 film way more than the, 74 film because it leans more into today's style of filmmaking, even though the movie came out in 2006. But you know what I mean? It's it's a relatively still modern movie uh, with modern production value. And and it, it 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 is more of that modern slasher. And I think if there's a, a certain, you know, uh, demographic and a certain movie fan that that will just like it better because it's it's faster paced, more entertaining, more kills, you know things happening. Um, but for me, I'm a purist and, uh, and I just, I, I appreciate it for, you know, what they were trying to do. And I certainly don't like, I don't think it's the worst, I don't hate it or anything like that. I just, I'm like, ah, eh, you know, it's, it's okay. So, you know, we're doing this. Okay. You know, and, and there's just certain things I'm like, wow, you're, you really went there. Okay. <laughs> you know, and holy cow. Um, the 2019 remake. I, I was going to say real quick about the 2006 movie. I'm yeah. not that big of a fan of it, but I will give it this. 
you know, any movie that has Mary Elizabeth Winstead in it, I give high marks just because I've always had a crush on her. But oh, there the you go. There you go. The 2019 movie, I will say this much. I don't think it was made for people like me or or yourself. I think it was made for, I guess, a teeny bopper audience. And that's all fine and good. I didn't really like it, but I could see maybe younger people being into it. Yeah, maybe it well, it was for me. It and was, it's not really a remake. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not. It's not a re. Well, it is a remake, but it's not a re. It's a. It's a. It's a reimagining, you know, of the story. There's no Billy. There's no Agnes. There's no. I mean, there's not even any phone calls. There's one phone call, but I mean, it's 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 not even a phone call. Um. So it is a complete reimagining. The 2019 film. Um. What frustrates me about this kind of stuff is, is. I think if you want to deliver, listen, social commentary, as I've said many times on my channel, I'm sure you probably heard me say this, is nothing new in horror movies. And 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 depending on what the social commentary is and how you weave it into the narrative can be quite powerful, can be quite meaningful, makes a lot of sense. But the second that that a movie becomes a political message with a movie attached to it, rather than the other way around, um, I think you're going to alienate and lose, especially when you are doing something that already has a built-in fan base, as as small as the Black Christmas fan base is in the big picture compared to something like Friday the Thirteenth or you know whatever. Um, it is there. They're strong. Uh, they're 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 you know uh, very um, loyal. And and I think when you say that this is Black Christmas, when it it isn't. I mean, it's a film that is essentially about, uh, you know, the patriarchy and tearing it down. I mean, it literally is about women in a sorority house and there is a cult uh, of white men who hate women and they, you know, all this. kind. Of, I mean, the quote at the beginning of the movie, and I forget what the quote is, but the quote at the beginning of the movie is just sets you up for what you're about to see now. Yeah, I mean, you literally have a character. Uh, the Carrie Elwes character is basically literally based on Jordan Peterson from Canada. <laughs> right, right. And and so I look at that and I think to myself, okay, so I'm I'm not going to get online and be all like, well, you know, woke this and woke that. If I, I want to look at this as objectively as I possibly can. And the producers of the movie came out and, and said, I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing, but they basically said, yeah, that is what we're doing. I mean, we it's not like we're blind to what we're doing. We know what we're doing here. This is very, it's intentional. The creative, you know, um, choices are intentional. The problem with it when you're doing it with Black Christmas, with a Black Christmas remake, is you're using the IP in the name to then get people to pay attention rather than getting people to pay attention to the message you want to deliver. And I think this movie would have done a lot better. I mean, I don't know. But the reason why it pissed a lot of people off is because you said you were remaking Black Christmas and that's not Black Christmas. I wish they would have called it Slay Bells, like S-L-A-Y uh, well, Bells, B-E-L-L-E-S. <laughs> right, yes, yes. Or call it Slay Girls. The subtitle, there was a there was a character poster that they released um, up uh, in the lead up to the movie that said Slay Girls in big text. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think that that was actually the title of the movie because the actual title, Black Christmas, was very small at the bottom. And I thought to myself, that's a perfect name for this. Slay Girls, you know, completely disassociate yourself from Black Christmas, any sort of, you know, commonalities that, may, oh, it's it's Christmas time, girls at a sorority house, allow us to, 
just let us draw the parallels. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Like people did with sorority row. Do you know what I mean? Like, like don't, don't, don't lean. So don't call it a black Christmas remake and then have nothing but a very strong and obvious uh, political message. I, I, I think I understand what they were trying to do. I applaud uh, Sophia Takal and April Wolf for uh, trying to do something they felt was very important. I think having strong female characters, obviously we've had them for years in horror, despite what some people might think, but I do think it is important that we continue that trend. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it in principle. And I think you should be able to tell any story that you want to tell, but you should have seen this coming. And maybe they did, and maybe they didn't care. But I, I think, you know, it feels irresponsible to me to be able to, and it was rushed into production. And although I have no evidence of this, I have no evidence of it at all. I cannot help but feel that this was Jason Blum's response to something that happened to him months prior the the uh, the announcement of this being made, where he he made, and I didn't think he need to I didn't think he needed to apologize for it, um, but he said something to the effect. Again, I'm paraphrasing about how. You know, there's not a lot of female directors in horror, which is true. Um, and he said, you know, I, I think he again, I'm paraphrasing, but he was talking about that and he said something. And and then, of course, I guess he felt the need to he said something where he felt the need to apologize and this kind of stuff. And then like five months later, all of a sudden we have a Black Christmas remake that's being rushed into production with a female writer and director. And I don't has Blum done that since? I don't know. So, I again, I have no evidence but I just look at the timing of it, and I think there's enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that maybe that's a possibility. It was his answer to say, no, 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 look, I can do that. you know. And I just, it, it frustrates me because, because it doesn't bode well for, because now it's, it's, it's lost. So all that hard work that you put in there about the message you believe in, even though I might think it's, it's way too on the nose and it's way too preachy and you're hitting me over the head and it's not something that I want to watch, you should have every right to deliver that. But because it's done in this way, now it's, it, it's, it's lost in translation. And, and now nobody cares about it and it came and went and it failed at the box office because you attached Black Christmas name to it. I think, I think, I think you should have just, my advice would have been, let's make a Christmas horror movie with this message, but call it something else. I just wanted to add real quick, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know people will debate Black Christmas and whether it has politics or not, the, the original, the 74 one. Right. My take on that, and I want to get your thoughts on this as well, is I don't think it's a message film, but I do think it's subversive in the fact that you have a main character that wants to have an abortion. Her boyfriend is like very against it. And, you know, you're obviously supposed to find the boyfriend very overbearing. But a lot of that's in the background. And I think the power of the film is that, you know, you may not like, you may have your own views on abortion, like pro-life or pro-choice, but you do end up sympathizing with this main character of Jess, uh, regardless of her own views on abortion. And I think that's what makes it such an effective film. It really humanizes her. For sure. And like you said, it's subversive, too, because, you know, you especially in 1974 in, in the 70s, usually that kind of thing would have been a role reversal. So you would have had Jess pregnant, obviously. I don't mean, you know, role reversal in that regard. But in, in terms of you would have had uh, the female character wanting to keep the baby and the male character would be more likely to. Uh, oh, my God, uh, honey, I think you need to get an abortion. I, you know. 
like that is traditionally stereotypically, especially at that time, I think is sort of probably how it would have gone down. But in this instance, you have the the male Kirdelay wanting to keep the baby and the woman wanting to have the abortion, which I think was very, very taboo uh, and very different. And and so, you know, there is a little bit of that political subtext there. But and there's nothing wrong. Like, I, again, I want your viewers to understand there's nothing wrong with having any kind of message you want in there. But you have to really think, how are we delivering this message? If this message is really important, we need to deliver it in a way that feels organic and not shoehorned in, not attacking anybody, but is really woven into the fabric of the narrative that hits people. Now, again, whether people like it, whether people don't, I mean, you know, you have no control over that. But you do your best to weave things into the narrative in a really organic way that feels like it's not shoehorned in or preachy or or condescending to your audience. Right, right. And, well, what what and, I was going to say in that regard is I always tell people, you know, I want a movie to seduce me into its message right. rather than beat me over the head with a hammer over right. its message. Right, exactly. It, 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 exactly. And 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 I think a lot of people, when they watched Black Christmas 2019, felt that. Felt like this doesn't, again, it doesn't feel like a movie with a political message. It feels like a political message with a movie attached to it. And 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 I'm not the only one that feels that way. Um, but but it certainly has its fans. And 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 there are people that really like the movie. And and I think that's great. You know, it, it works for some, it doesn't work for others. And and that's and that's the great thing about movies. I was gonna say real quick too, with with regards to uh Black Christmas 1974, I think one of the interesting things about it is that in later slasher movies, we get a lot of supporting cast characters who essentially you're like, these kids are annoying and I want them to die. I hope Freddie gets them. But in right. Black Christmas, I didn't really find any of the characters annoying. I, I really liked Lynn Griffin's character and even Margot Robbie, who's uh, she's obnoxious in some ways, but she also she's very human. And um, you end up Margot Kidder, you mean Margot Kidder. I don't know why I keep saying Margot Robbie. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah. But uh, that's OK. Mar you got you got you got. Marvel on the brain, or DC, <laughs> DC. I mean, well, she, she's a character that's very, um, she's very outspoken and she's rough right. around the edges, but you know, you also see that she has her own issues and she's very yeah. humanized in a lot of ways. Well, and, and I don't think you see that in later horror movies. No. And it's Margot Kidder pre Superman. So, uh, you know, very early. And of course, Margot Kidder's Canadian and, 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 um, uh, you know, you also have um, Andrea Martin, who's Canadian. Uh, so it's nice to see her in there. Now, she obviously was in the 2006 remake. No, but I agree with you. I think, I, I, again, watching the movie today because of its dated production value and it's, you know, in the acting. And I mean, certainly you can tell that it's, you know, dated, but you can tell what Bob Clark was doing. He he said specifically that he didn't want these girls to be the ar the stereotypical archetypes, right? You know, the bimbo, the, you know, the slut, the this, the that, even though... Mar Margot Kidder has a little bit of that. I said he made it before the archetype's really a thing in the slasher. Right, movie. right, exactly. And so it's very believable. Um, no, I think he did a great job. And uh, also, any movie with John Saxon is worth watching. He's great. <laughs> He's the man. Rest in peace, John Saxon. So in terms of It's Me, Billy, how did you get the idea to do a fan-made sequel to the original Black Christmas? What led you to say, hey, I'm going to do this? Well, um, got to go back to 2019. So in 2019, I turned 40 
And, uh, you know, I've spent, like I said, at the top of the show, I've spent most of my life in the entertainment industry as a professional voice actor. And, uh, but my first love is film and I went to film school. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a filmmaker and, you know, I've still, I've dabbled in it here or there. I've worked on sets before as a PA and, you know, for certain friends I know and, and, um, you know, and I've made my little Halloween shorts on my channel. It's just really me just, you know, farting around, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're fine. I mean, you know, but, but they're not like, you know, professional films or anything like that. They're just me having fun, kind of keeping the creative juices going. And, um, but when I turned 40 in 2019, I thought, geez, 40, you know, I thought, I mean, I'm not old, but I'm not young. I mean, I'm approaching midlife and I'm, I'm heading that way. And I thought, you know, I, I, I want to really start to nurture the filmmaking side of my career. I mean, if I'm, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it now. I want to see if, if, if I can, I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to be the next Spielberg, but I want to see if I can have any sort of, you know, shot at, at, at making some, some, some movies, but I didn't want to bite off more that I could chew. And so I was like, well, where am I going to start? So I thought, well, a fan film is a good place to start, but I don't want to do Halloween uh, because I've made little Halloween shorts before. And there's a lot of, it's just a saturated thing. And, and at the level that I knew I wanted to make this film at, uh, which was professional through and through, I knew that the probability of, of doing a Halloween fan film that would have the same production value as the Blumhouse films coming out uh, would probably not bode well with Malik Akkad. So I knew that I wasn't going to do Halloween. I wasn't going to do Friday the 13th because Vincent DeSanti has that locked up and he's doing a great job. Didn't want to do A and Night on Elm Street. Alone, right? That's correct. That's correct. I uh, wasn't going to do Friday the 13th because Cecil Laird has got that locked up with Dylan's new nightmare in terms of the, the uh, level of production value that I'm, you know, oh, you meant Freddy Krueger with Dylan's new nightmare. You yes, that Friday is correct. Uh, oh, no, no, no. But I meant uh, Friday the 13th for Vincent DeSanti and then Cecil Laird with Dylan's new okay, okay, okay. nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I was watching Black Christmas one night, not for any other reason other than I just hadn't seen it in a while. And when it got to the end, I thought, geez, you know what? What a great ending. And I'm the first to admit that it doesn't need a sequel. It's one of the greatest endings in all of horror. And depending on how, I know there are, there are some Black Christmas purists out there that will say that, no, no, Jess died at the end of that movie because if you pay attention, Billy makes a phone call after every death. And then, of course, you know, there's the cop on the porch smoking a cigarette and then the phone begins to ring. And that's supposed to signify to the audience that he's got Jess. And 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 fair enough. I mean, if you that that certainly that interpretation is there. However, we do know that a few years before Bob Clark died, he was thinking about doing a sequel to the original and having Olivia Hussey return. But this time playing the sorority mother so we we do know that at least you know it is it's not as ambiguous as as one or it's not as as set in stone as as one might think but i thought to myself i wonder i, I wonder if what if if i could do something with black christmas i'm a canadian from toronto black christmas is a canadian horror movie shot in toronto who better to do it than, than canadian filmmakers from toronto and there were no black christmas quote unquote fan films online i mean I, I think there was one that was like a home movie you know or something like that but in terms of like professional production value and through and through you know a real film uh, there was nothing you know like that at all to, I mean, to, I mean, I wasn't surprised by that because again, it's a very niche cult kind of film. 
And I thought, huh. So I approached my best friend, Bruce Dale, who I've known for 30 years, who also works in the film industry here in Canada. He's the national manager of education and training at William F. White International. That is one of Canada's largest distributors of lighting and grip and camera gear in the country. So when Hollywood comes up to Canada to shoot or even, you know, here in Canada, uh, very often we will, you know, uh, rent our gear from White. So he's been boots on the ground on the rental side of the film industry for years. Uh, years. And, and obviously we grew up together as teenagers making home movies. So uh, I turned to him and I said, listen, I said, I, I, I have this idea. I said, I'm, I'm 40. You're, you're, you're 40. <laughs> you know, I said, I said, I, I really, I want to make a, a film, but not, not like, not little, I, I want a, a film, a real film. And he's like, okay. So when I pitched the Black Christmas idea to him, I, I had to sell it to him a bit. And we sat down and we watched the movie. He, ironically, he actually had never seen it. He'd heard of it. He, he knew all about it, of course, um, but he had never actually seen it. So we sat down, we watched it. I explained my idea to him and I was able to sell it to him. So I was, so he, he, he was, so he was a little apprehensive at first, but then he was like, okay, okay. All right. And, and, and then from that moment, we, you know, started the process of, uh, of, uh, working towards getting it made. Now with regards to where the film is set, uh, the fan film is set, uh, not in the sorority house set in, uh, I guess Jess, uh, bought a mansion after the events of black Christmas. Did you ever want to work in, in the, uh, the house that the original was filmed in where, was there any thought given to that? Yes. So, um, correct. So contrary to what some people think, and I understand why they might think this, it's me, Billy, uh, does not, the, the main location is, is not number one. It's not the same house from the original film. And number two, it's not supposed to be the same house from the original film. We just wanted a house that was similar in style. Whenever you're shooting a low budget horror movie, uh, well, I think, any horror movie really, but certainly when you're a low budget indie shoot, um, you know, location, location, location. And um, we knew we wanted to have a home and a house that was reminiscent of the sorority house in the original film, but maybe a little more rural uh, as opposed to urban. And, uh, but we thought for something which would be really cool for the fans and, and to help sort of connect our film to the original, we wanted to have the opening of our movie take place in the original sorority house. It's still there. I've been down there a few times. Um, it's here in Toronto. It's on a private, it's in a very affluent area of Toronto and it's on a private sort of laneway uh, road. And um, so Bruce and I went down there one day to to sort of you know speak to the owners or inquire and you know and we got up to the intercom it's one of those you know homes where you have to you know go to the intercom and uh we pressed the intercom and all we heard was yes and uh i said oh uh hi yes you know my name's dave mccray blah 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 dee, 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 doo, 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 doo. and uh and then all he said was no we're not interested and that's it and where does that leave you? Right. I mean, I, I don't want to be a dick. I don't want to press. I don't want to be like, oh, come on, man. You know, I don't want to, you know, I want to be respectful and professional. Um, but it's sort of I think what was disappointing about that was we didn't even have an opportunity to 
uh, sell it to him. You know, I mean, obviously we would be paying to be there. I mean, we're not asking for free, you know, this is a professional shoot, you know, and, and, um, but it's unfortunate that we didn't just have an opportunity to speak, but at the same time, who knows? I mean, there's a number, I know the, the owners have, have switched over the years. Um, I do know like 25 years ago, obviously Lynn Art Hindle did a, you know, a bit in the house that's on the old school black Christmas DVD. Uh, it might've been a different owner then. I mean, you know, there's lots of reasons why sometimes people can get into homes and then 10 years later, they, they can't. And, and sometimes that is maybe the owner has a change of heart because there's just too many fucking people or. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm assuming there's people owner. that come by that house all the time and are like, there, there might be, I mean, it's, there was nobody there when we were there. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly not, but again, I mean, it's here in Toronto, right? It's not in Los Angeles. It's not the Elm Street house. It's not the Myers house. Um, but certainly, I think if anybody is visiting Toronto and and is a Black Christmas fan, it would be on their list to, you know, to go by. Um, so that was disappointing. So we had to restructure the opening of the of the film. So you'll see that our, our movie now, uh, the opening of the film takes place on the side of the road. And... Um, the, and so we had to restructure sort of the opening a bit and, and the conversation in the car about how Sam is upset that she couldn't get into the sorority house to see where it all happened because, you know, her grandma, that's really sort of, you know, a real life thing about how we're, how we were, were actually denied that access as well. But it, it, it works for the character because you know, Sam wanted to get into that house because it was part of her grieving process of her, you know, because she thinks her grandmother's dead. So she just wanted to see this place that was so important to her and her grandmother's legacy and she was denied access. So it uh, it kind of works in a, in a sort of ironic way. So I, I have to ask, how did you end up uh, with the cast? Like, how did you cast the movie? Because I have to say, the actress that plays Sam, she, she bears a resemblance to Olivia. So I, I thought that was just perfect casting. Thank you. Yes, she does. So our cast is great. Uh, the entire cast is amazing. Shout out to Victoria Miro, who played Sam, of course, Shelby Handley, who played Emma, Malika Henney, who played Justine, Brian Charles Peter, who was the physical body of Billy and Carol Coltman, who was Mrs. Crane slash Agnes. And um, so again, uh, you know, we we knew that if we're going to do this, we got to do it right. So we're not going to hire our friends to, you know, to be our actors, <laughs> right? We're going to hire actors. And um, we actually hired our actors. Billy was the last one to be hired, the physical body of Billy. Um, we had actually yeah, gone- you did the voice, right? Yes. There's a couple of times on the phone where it is Brian. There's one or two lines where it is him. But 99.9% .9 of the time, I am Billy on the phone. And But Brian Charles Peter is the body of Billy, he's the he's the you know the man that you see with the long hair and all that kind of stuff, and he was he he's fantastic. He's he's great, and that's his real long hair too. It's not a wig. So um, we we cast it early because there's a couple of different ways that you can. I mean, obviously we were looking to crowdfund, which is always tricky. Um, and when you're looking to crowdfund a Black Christmas fan film, I mean, who gives a shit about Black Christmas, right? And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there were so many things working against us. And uh, also, too, something massive happened in 2020, one month before we were going to launch our campaign, which was, of course, the global pandemic. And so now it's like, oh, God, like, I mean, things, so many things are working against us. So we thought 
Um, there's a couple of ways you can approach this when you're crowdfunding a film. You 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 can crowdfund and raise the money that you need, and then you go hire your actors, or you can uh, hire the actors on a sort of a letter of intent kind of thing, right? Whereas, you know, if if we raise the money to make this movie, um, then we will make the movie and you will be part of the movie and we'll pay you and all that kind of stuff. However, if we don't raise the money, well, then it's, you know, it's neither here nor there. You just, you know, that's it, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but we thought it, we thought because of the 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 climate and everything that was going on, and because it's Black Christmas and it, it's not as popular as Halloween Friday or Elm Street, we thought, you know, if we can cast first, show how, show that we're serious, professional actors, you know, show that, you know, we're, we're, we're not fucking around here. Um, maybe that will help us. And I think it did. I, I think showing the three leads who were very part of the promotional material, having them on, you know, my channel, um, you know, casting them so early was, was great because we casted them in March of 2020. The Indiegogo campaign didn't launch until July of 2020. And then we didn't shoot the movie until the end of November. And what was so great about that too, is that these three ladies who are extraordinarily talented did not know each other, which is often the case, did not know each other before being cast in this movie. And that, what is it, seven, eight months, you know, whatever it is before we went to camera, that time they would have their own Zoom sessions and get to know each other because at that time, everybody was over Zoom. Nobody was getting together because of the, you know, the, the situation. But that natural chemistry and dynamic, you know, by the time we got to camera, you really believed they were real friends. And I think a big part of that is, yes, they're really good actors. And that's part of your job is to convince the audience that you are really, you know, uh, um, friends, even though you may have met just last week. But I think that time really helped that believability even more. So, so yeah, so, so we put out a casting call and, and, and we, we knew that, uh, when it came to the granddaughter of Jess Bradford, we knew that we wanted somebody hopefully that had a strong Olivia Hussey resemblance. Now, at the end of the day, it comes down to talent and performance. And if Shelby Handley had auditioned for, you know, um, uh, the role of Sam, she played, you know, Emma in the movie and she nailed it. And we never came across, you know, Victoria. We never, and she, we would have hired her. I mean, you know, like at the end of the day, we would have hired whoever best fit the role, as long as it was somebody that fit, you know, the, um, ethnicity and the, you know, the type and all that kind of stuff. At the same but time, we were... though, I mean, part of acting, I mean, I, I don't want to like over um, emphasize this, but acting does have a modeling aspect to it in a way, because like, of course, it, I mean, yeah. if, if you're uh, making a movie about a hulking killer, you know, there's a reason you're going to go to Kane Hodder Ab rather absolutely. than a skinny guy. You know? You're bang on, you're bang on. I just meant that if Victoria had never auditioned if we had never come across her and but Shelby for whatever reason auditioned for that role and she was spectacular we would have hired her I mean like it 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 would have come down to um you know we were we were looking obviously for girls with brown hair right which obviously Shelby does not have but the 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 overall point you know I'm trying to make is that um 
you could have the look, you can have the hair, but if you don't have the performance and the talent behind that, we're not going to cast you, right? That's basically the point I'm making is that at the end of the day, if she just kind of looked like Olivia Hussey, but she was fucking spectacular and nailing it, we probably would have hired her. You know what I'm saying? We were just so fortunate that we came across Victoria Miro, uh, who I saw her headshot and I thought, whoa, I thought she, you know, man, does she look, I totally believe that she could be a young Olivia Hussey. And so I almost knew when I saw her headshot, I, I, at that point, it was just, I hope she's good, <laughs> you know, because if she's not, well, then we have to move on. Um, but she was great. She was great. And one of the things that she did in her audition when we sent her the sides was uh, she was, she, 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 she had this great ability to cry on demand. Uh, which is a real skill that not a lot that not you know a, a lot of actors have, and I don't just mean the emotion; I mean the actual weepy tears. And so um, she was spectacular, and Shelby as Emma was just. I cut, and I haven't released this yet, but I still have it. I took Shelby's audition, and I took Victoria's audition because they they were reading the same lines opposite each other in the same scene. And, and I put their audition together and it actually does look like they're talking to each other, even though they're really not. And they don't even know each other at this point. And they're in two completely different rooms in two completely different parts of the city. And that's how good their performances were. That's how good and like how nuanced their performances were. So, so I was just thrilled to, to, to find, you know, and then, you know, Malika, you know, she comes along and just nails her sides and, and, and just, I mean, everybody was just great, just really solid and believable. One thing about this fan film, and I, it's weird because I said this to the people who made um, the Friday the 13th Bloodline movies, fan films now, I almost want to use quotes around fan film because mm -hmm. th to me, these are more than just fan films because they're, very professionally done. When I first saw DeSantis Never Hike Alone, I just thought this this does not feel like a fan film. Same with your film. So could you talk about how fan films have just I they've completely changed, I think, in the last 10 or so years? Yeah. Well, I think I think you're seeing a separation now. So and I think what's happening is, you know, the reason why we have to call It's Me, Billy, a fan film and the reason why Vincent DeSanti has to call Never Hike Alone a fan film and you know all that kind of, is because we don't own the intellectual property. So we are doing, for all intents and purposes, we are doing a fan film. Um, but we are also filmmakers who work in the business, who work in the industry, who are doing a fan film. So we understand the filmmaking process. We understand, you know, we have the connections that if we can raise the production budget, we know how to allocate the money appropriately to what departments and what, you know, who we need, the equipment we need, you know, how to produce a real movie. And so you're seeing, what you're seeing is, is really, these are, these are indie horror movies. That's what they really are. Um, but because it's a Friday the 13th indie horror, we have to call it a fan film. And unfortunately, because for so many years, this, there's been a stigma around fan films that it's just usually, you're, you know, you and your friends in your backyard farting around on your camcorder or now it'd be like, you know, your, you know, your iPhone. Um, it's usually, it, usually, not all the time, but it's usually made from people who don't understand you know, uh, not don't understand. That sounds a little pretentious. I just mean that that usually it's 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 
just friends hanging out, having fun. So when you watch it, the production value is clearly, you know, your phone. And and in terms of the shots, in terms of the lighting, in terms of the acting, in terms of right, it's it's just friends having fun, getting together. And 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 there's nothing wrong with that. But fan films for decades have been that. And now you're seeing sort of a separation where filmmakers like myself or, you know, Vincent DeSanti or Cecil Laird see an opportunity to create a real movie, but use the fan film as a way to draw eyeballs onto your project, make it as professionally as you possibly can. You know, it, it, I mean, we would have gone about It's Me, Billy in the same, sorry, if It's Me, Billy was not a fan film, we would have gone about it. Hang on, let me see what I'm trying to say here. You have to cut this part out. Uh, I'm trying to compartmentalize my thoughts. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that if if It's Me, Billy had been any other movie, we would have gone about it the same way. If the movie was called, you know, Attack of the Killer Mice or something, the process for what we went through, we would have gone about it the same way. We're hiring a professional DP. We're hiring professional actors. We're hiring a professional crew. You know, we're, you know, you talk about production insurance and, and craft services and, 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 you know, like all these things. I mean, we're making a movie. That's what we're doing. You know, it's a low budget indie film, but we're making a movie. Um, so uh, it is, hard to kind of get people to pay attention to your fan film when you have to market it as a fan film, because if you don't, then there could be, you know, uh, there could be a potential problem there. Um, but the work at the end of the day speaks for itself. And I think when people watch Never Hike Alone or It's Me, Billy, they see, oh, okay, well, clearly, like, it's almost cheating. It's almost, why, it's not really a fan film. I mean, this is, you know what I mean? But I think you're seeing that separation now. And, and the reason why, again, I know I'm all over the place here, but the reason why filmmakers are starting to use fan films uh, in a way in terms of putting out, you know, uh, high level production value and, you know, into the work is because we can use them as portfolio pieces and we can use them as calling cards. Um, it's very difficult when nobody's heard of you to raise money for a movie nobody's heard of or nobody cares about. And so what Vincent DeSanti did, which was genius, he did Never Hike Alone, blew the doors off of everything. It, it, it looks like, a you know, just as good as any of the official entries, has over 3 million views on YouTube. It's also Friday the 13th, so, you know, it kind of sells itself. Um, but people lost their minds. And now, if he was to raise money for an original piece, if he was to go to Indiegogo and raise money for an original piece, I'm not saying that he'd be he'd necessarily be able to raise as much, but he's got a following now. He's got people that that trust him now. He's got he's he's earned that trust. He's shown what he's been able to do. If you came out for Friday the Thirteenth, are you going to come out for Attack of the Killer Mice? You know what I'm saying? And again, it's not guaranteed. Um, but that's sort of the the thought process, at least for us. I mean, I can't speak for for Vince personally, but for us, you know, we're using this as 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 a calling card piece. And it's me, Billy was was great because we actually had an opportunity to speak to a studio because of it's me, Billy. Not not to remake it's me, Billy, but but about other things. So, um, and one of those reasons was because of the way it looked and played out. This doesn't look like a $60,000, you know, indie 
horror movie. This looks Is like a two million. It, it was sixty four thousand Canadian, about forty eight thousand U.S. Yeah. Wow. Our our Indiegogo production budget was sixty thousand. We raised sixty four thousand. Um, and so, yeah, so anyways, I know I'm kind of all over the place here. What a shock for people who know me. Uh, but, but yeah, so I, I think it's for fan films. If you just want to make fan films with your friends and all that kind of stuff, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. That's where the vast majority of fan films will always be. They will always look like low budget fan films. Generally speaking, will always look like fan films because the vast majority of people making them are not filmmakers or they're, they're aspiring filmmakers or they're part-time film. You know, like there's different tiers, but, but, but then there's, there's, there's a, a tier above that where people are taking it very seriously because they want to use this as a, as a piece to, to, to really say something and to really sell something and, and, and to really say something about what they can do as a, as a filmmaker. I was, I was going to add to that. I mean, what Vince did was brilliant because, you know, for people that don't know, it only got, uh, recently announced there was going to be a Friday the 13th Crystal Lake TV show, right? But before right. that, we had the the great drought, you know, no Friday the 13th, it's tied up in legal battles. And Vince picked the perfect time because so many people were hungry for Friday the 13th. It was a brilliant move. He he did. And again, when you when you take it seriously and you go out to make a real movie, that helps it even more, right? And people, they, they, they don't feel like they're watching a fan film. That's one of the biggest compliments that we get on our film is this doesn't feel like a fan film, right? It doesn't feel like that, you know, those kids in your backyard with your friends, it feels like a real movie. Well, well that's because it is. I mean, we, we you know, everybody, everything about it was professional. Our DP is, you know, uh, you know, he's worked in the business for 35 years, the crew, that's what they do. It's me, Billy was just a stop along the way for them. When they were done that, they were on to the next TV show or the next film. And, and so the reason why it looks the way it does is yes, because of our vision. I certainly don't want to, you know, uh, not give myself and Bruce credit. Obviously we wrote it, we produced it, we directed it. Um, we were there. Uh, but you know, you have to understand the filmmaking process and how to craft your lighting and craft your shots and work with your DP. And, you know, we were shooting on the Airy Mini with master prime lenses and jibs and dolly track and, you know, uh, you know, Dana dollies and, 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 you know, Ronins and, and I mean, you know, and a professional crew. So if you know what you do now, you, you can have the best equipment in the world, but if you don't know how to use it, it doesn't matter. So you have to surround yourself with the right people. It, it's not the success of Billy or the success of, you know, never hike alone is, is largely because of, uh, you know, we, we, we surrounded ourselves with the right people, uh, to make it happen. I was going to say in terms of the equipment and the technology, is there like maybe a, a slightly lower barrier to entry now when it comes to, I mean, I think, there's tech that you can get. There's cameras that you can get now that are, you know, if you have enough money, you they're easier to get than they would have been maybe 40, 50 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. No, look, and there are some wonderful fan films out there that that are shot on, you know, DSLRs or, you know, the Canon Mark III or the, the Sony, what is it? gh5 or whatever it's called yeah i mean and 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 they look at look if you know how to craft your shots and you know how to craft your lighting and you know you know you know the shots you want you know the coverage you want to get you know about you know uh you know framing and 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 you know how to tell a story through the lens you can shoot a really good looking movie on an iphone 
The problem with fan films is the vast majority, not everybody, but the vast majority of people making fan films don't understand that. They don't understand how to tell stories through making movies. It's not just point and shoot and turn on a light in the background, you know? Um, so that's why most fan films you see look the way they do. And I'm not saying that they care either. I mean, they're just having fun with their friends, right? But again, there is, there's those tiers. Then there's sort of a middle tier where, you know, there's fan films that are, that are actually pretty good. You know, I mean, you can tell that they're, fan films but 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 they're really good like they're really well done you can tell that that there is thought there is there is crafting there is effort there is real hard work that's gone into this you you can tell that they've thought about their shots they've thought about you know how to tell that story through the lens and then there's the higher tiers um you know and i i think we're seeing that separation but the equipment but you're right i mean it 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 if you don't know how to use it it doesn't matter if you're shooting on the red epic or the airy or you know it, it, if you don't know how to use it, it it doesn't matter you know but we were very fortunate uh for our film to shoot on the airy mini and uh but but i couldn't have got behind the camera and made it work i mean i, I could have figured it out but we wanted to hire a dp and we did. And It's Me, Billy was nominated for a CSC award, which was amazing. You know, the CSC is the Canadian Society of Cinematographers. It's the Canadian equivalent of the ASC in the States. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a big deal. And we were nominated uh, in the dramatic short category. And that is, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's incredible. It's amazing. What was the biggest challenge? Because I think my listeners always want to know, you know, how is the movie magic made? So what were the trials and tribulations? I mean, especially because, you know, this was made while we were still going through the pandemic. Uh, but what, what were some of the challenges of filming this movie? I think that, um, well, you know, the challenges, I think just making sure, this is going to sound kind of funny, but uh, making sure that we were as prepared as possible. If I had any advice to any aspiring filmmaker out there or any indie filmmaker out there, because that's what I am. I'm an indie, you know, filmmaker, uh, would be that no matter what you are doing, no matter what film you are creating, do not cut corners, uh, you know, be as prepared as you possibly can. Because this was the first time that Bruce and I were stepping into a directing, writing, and producing role at this level, making a real low-budget indie, you know, film, um, and we knew that we were going to be working with people that do this all the time. And we were actually the newbies on set. We didn't want to embarrass ourselves and we didn't want to embarrass them. And we wanted them to feel confident in us. If you have a happy crew and happy actors that feel taken care of, that are well-fed, that feel respected and acknowledged and part of the process, things are going to go very smoothly for you. Now, I'm talking about low budget indie horror movie on a big Hollywood set, you know, where you got 250 people, you got a lot of chefs in the kitchen, you got a lot of, you know, you, you know, you got the studio executives breathing down your neck and egos and producers, and, you know, it's, it's harder, right? It's amazing any movie gets made. But in terms of the indie side of things, you know, we wanted to really show that that we are taking this very seriously. So the process we went through was was the the process you would go through, you know, taking it just as serious as we would on like a Hollywood film, just on a very, very tiny, smaller 
scale. And, um, and I think that our crew really appreciated that. There were a couple of guys, I think it was our boom operator and maybe one of our grips, uh, turned to us or turned to me anyway, and said, um, I can't remember. I can't remember if it was just out of the blue or if it was in the context of a conversation. But he said to me, and I'm. I, this is not one word of a lie, no exaggeration. And this is a guy that's worked on tons of sets. And he turns to me and he says, "You know, I just want to let you know that um, I would never have guessed that this is your first time doing this. Like I would never have. Like this is a well-oiled machine." And that is a really big compliment from a guy who will be working on a set five days after he's done, you know, Billy, right? You know, and and so it it, it sounds anytime, like your confidence inspired their confidence in the film. Yes, yes, because because of how prepared we were. If we were not prepared and we're like, ah, we'll fix it in post, as the old, you know, famous saying goes, right? And sometimes you do have to fix things in post. Um, but certainly it it should be because yeah you've exhausted all the opportunities to, you know, try to figure out how to do it in camera, not because you messed up and weren't prepared. Um, yes, no, you're right. And, and, you know, we, we, we knew we just needed to be as prepared as possible because look, it's always inevitable, whether it's a Hollywood set, whether it's a low budget indie shoot, something's going to come up that you're not prepared for, whether that somebody, stubs their toe and you got to delay shooting their scene, whether that's, you know, uh, you accidentally poke a hole in the wall and you're like, oh my God, you forget a prop and you got to drive down to the store to get it. And you got to delay shooting and, you know, whatever it is, there's always something that comes up no matter how prepared you are. But if you are as prepared as possible, you've got all your ducks in a row, you've got your shot list, you're not figuring out how to shoot the movie when you get to the location. You already know how you're gonna shoot the movie because you've location scouted. You've been there with your DP, with your key grip, you know, with your gaffer, and you know, you've know you gone through the place and you've you know checked out where all the outlets are, where you're gonna plug in things. You know, you've gone through sort of shot and you do your shot list. You know, and so when you get to location, you're not wasting time. Okay, how are we going to shoot this now? No, you know how. It's just, okay, here we are. We're in this scene. This is how we're going to shoot it. Let's get to work. You know, and that's how prepared we were, you know, and because you have to do that, you're paying for the location, you're paying the crew, you're paying the actors. You have to, you have to be that prepared. And so when you say obstacles, I, I think it was just really that the, the, the overall sort of just making sure we were prepared was one of the, I'm not gonna say it was one of the toughest parts, but it was one of those things where it was always on our minds. We have to be prepared, you know, because then when something does happen that is out of your control, you're not, you, you come at it with a sense of calm and clear-headedness because you're not already, you know, frazzled and upset because you have all these other things that you should have been prepared on and now the whole set is falling apart. You don't have that because you were prepared. So you can handle that little thing that pops up with relative ease. Um, and uh, so that would be my advice. And I, and I think that overall for me was sort of just being prepared. That was, that was the 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 tough thing you know the the obstacle because we wanted to to you know put on a good show i gotta ask uh one scene that really stood out to me in particular was you know you have one of the killings happen and you basically recreate the famous eye scene from the original black christmas 
maybe this would be a better question for your DP. Uh, but I, I just want to, I was wondering, like, how did you go about recreating that scene, getting the lighting right and things of that nature? Yeah. So, um, yeah, if Greg were here, he'd be able to dive into, into the nitty gritty. But we we knew we wanted uh, an eye shot. So there's two eye shots in the original film, right? There's the eye shot when he's on top of Margot Kidder's character and he's got the unicorn um, glass statue above his head and you see his eye. And then, of course, there's the famous, you know, the more eerie one at the end of the movie. And we were going to have two eye shots in our film as well. Um, but the first one sort of paying homage to the Margot Kidder death, um, we just, yeah. So, so, I mean, the, the, your question was how we went about it. Right. So, um, we knew that we wanted the eye shot. So I believe, I can't remember now, I believe how we replicated the, the um uh just the sort of bit of light on yeah because he's, he's sort of covered in shadow but you see the eye just like in the original movie there's light illuminating the eyeball correct so that was done from a mirror i believe um uh taped to a c-stand off to the right and it took a while to 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 get the shape correct because you didn't want it to look synthetic you do you you wanted it to look like oh there's just something because depending on the shape of the of how we shaped the tape around the mirror it might look too rigid too synthetic like there's they've this is this doesn't look natural like there's something in the room that the moonlight's shining off of or something because that's what you want it to look like you want it just to look like there's whether it's a street light coming in through the window or the moonlight there's something it's hitting and just bouncing onto his eye and so it took a while to finesse that um, because there were a couple of times where it, it looked a little too like synthetic. You know, we we created this. Um, but finally, I think we managed on something sort of a happy medium in the middle that looks pretty good. And uh, and that's all it was. I, I believe I d there was a light outside on a stand, obviously outside the window for the moonlight. But that that's not the light that was that was casting on Brian's face. If I remember correctly, and again, I could be wrong on this, um, I think it was either a, I don't know if it was a flashlight or if it was an actual 5K. I can't remember now, but there was a light shining onto the mirror, which shined onto onto Brian's face, and um, and that's I love how the ingenuity we did that. Involved with this, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it it worked. It worked. I mean, it took a little bit to finesse, like I said, but it worked. And then in post production, uh, we just we mapped Brian's face a little bit and darkened his face a little more um, because uh, we could see his face. Uh, just a little too much, I think, uh, in the raw footage. And so we just kind of, you know, masked his, his, you know, the one side of his face a little bit, darkened it so you couldn't really make out any features and then, you know, sort of, uh, um, tracked it as he moved a little bit and, and, uh, and it worked, it worked great. Yeah, no, it was great. And we shot that probably about five or six times to get, you know, the right movements and the right look and all that kind of stuff. And of course that we, we, we just actually had the camera on the bed shooting up at, uh, at Brian. So. So I have to ask, your movie sort of adds to the mythology of Black Christmas. And I know 
especially with the Halloween movies. You were a purist when it comes to a lot of horror movies. Uh, so how did you go about, uh, I guess, dealing with adding to the mythology? Because I think you want to respect the source material, but you also want to add a new twist on things. So how did you work that out in your mind and then putting it to screen? Well, that was what we called cracking the code. So uh, for most of the summer of 2019, Bruce and I would have story meetings where we were trying to figure out how to crack the code. Like, what's the story going to be? You know, where are we going to set it? Are we going to set it in the 80s? Well, then it becomes, a you know, a period piece and we'll have to raise like, you know, half a million dollars for that because then all the cars got to look like they're from the 80s, all the wardrobe, all the hairdos. And so we're like, no, 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 let's make things easier and let's fast forward, you know. 50 years, 47 years, you know, whatever in the future. But then we're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, could everybody still be alive? Yep. So if they're in their early 20s in 1974, they'd be like late 60s, early 70s. Yep. Totally believable. Okay. This might be cool. And then it sort of becomes like a Halloween 18 sort of scenario um, where we fast forward so many years into the future. Of course, we're not erasing any sequels because there never were any. Um, and we thought, okay, what if Jess was alive? Because at the end of the movie, the original film, uh, again, we don't know whether she died or not. Right. But we also don't know what happened to the baby. And I watched that movie several times. Now we know she's pregnant, but that last scene in the, uh, in the bedroom where she's been sedated, I'm listening to the dialogue and listen. And there's not one mention of like, oh, it's too bad she lost the baby or, you know, like there's nothing like that. So she's presumably still pregnant and the movie ends and she's pregnant. So I thought, well, there's, there's, there's our input. So I think, so we said, you know what? She, she had a baby. It grew up. The baby had a baby and that's who we're following the granddaughter. So once we cracked the code of, of where we wanted to set it and how we wanted to fast forward, um, we knew that, like I always say on my channel, right? Even the original Halloween didn't need a sequel. The original black Christmas didn't need one, but by the sheer fact that you are making a sequel, there has to be an understanding that you have to push the narrative forward. Now, how far you push it forward and how much you reveal, well, that's up to the discretion of the screenwriters and the filmmakers. But you have to push it forward. You have to show a little bit more or do something a little bit different. Otherwise, you're just making the same movie over again. One of the... the um, uh, I say complaints, but one of the criticisms that we got on the movie from some people was, well, I didn't like how much you showed Billy. And we said, okay, fair enough. But you have to remember that we're not making our own version of the original Black Christmas. Some fan films will just like make their own version of a, you know, of a fan film and they can't, you know, and you can tell that. No, we're making a direct sequel to the original Black Christmas as professionally as we possibly can. And so that when you watch it, you'd think that this was, the, you know, the real deal. And so we need to progress the narrative forward. We need to progress the characters forward. And that includes Billy. But how do you progress? How do you develop a character like Billy whose identity is anonymous it works because we don't know anything about him. We hardly ever see him, only silhouettes and through POVs. 
well, we don't want to just do the same thing over again because the audience has already seen that. So how do we preserve the integrity of the mystique of Billy without showing too much? And this is what's great about indie filmmaking because we are the studio. So we can do whatever the hell we want. We don't shoot, we, like we don't get notes going, um, I think you need to show more. Uh, I think you need to show more. You know what I mean? If you don't show more, we're not going to release your fucking movie. I mean, you know, when you work for the studio system, you know, sometimes it can be, sometimes things end up in films that the filmmakers don't want to do or they start to go down paths that they didn't really want to do because, but the studio wants them to, you know? And so that's, what's great about this too, is that, you know, we are at the mercy of ourselves. And so we knew, okay, so what do we do? Well, let's show him, let's show his body because we rarely see, like in the original, you never see him from an objective point of view. So when we first see Billy in It's Me, Billy, we see him in the attic but we're seeing him from an you know from a distance it's the first time you're seeing him from this perspective but you're not seeing any details you're not seeing his face you're not seeing what he looks like he's just in this dimly lit light in the attic next to a window sitting in a rocking chair well that is progressing the character it's progressing a character that must remain anonymous without any details of his backstory or who the hell he is. How do you progress him? You progress him through the lens. That's what you do. So we decided, let's show him, like in the original, his tantrum was through his POV, right? In the attic, he's knocking over the rocking chair and he's having a tantrum and it's through his POV. Well, what are we going to do in the sequel? Well, let's now let's show him have that tantrum from a different perspective, but you're not seeing him. It's not like you're seeing any features. It's not like we decided to cut in for a close-up and you see his face going, uh, 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 which we could have done. Right. And maybe that would have been a note from a studio. I think you need to go in for a close up so we can see his face. The audience would love that, you know, and no, we're like, no, we're not doing it because we don't want to do that. So we didn't do that. So there were those things that that we had to sort of work out along the way. How do we progress Billy, especially uh, while still preserving the integrity of the mystique of the character? And I think even though some people weren't uh, weren't happy with with how much of his body we saw. I I would like to think that I still think we did justice to preserving that mystery. I I was uh, most shocked by the. I mean, I people should watch it. Uh, I I hate spoiling it, but I was most shocked by the inclusion of Agnes. I didn't I didn't see that hmm. one coming, and I was interested in why you decided great. to include that. I don't think it was a bad choice, by the way, but you know it's such an interesting character because we hear about Agnes so much in the original movie, but we don't really know anything about her. I think there's an implication that it's Billy's sister, but I, you know, I never even got that impression. I was like, is Agnes dead? Did he kill her? Is it, is this the baby? I never really understood that. So I was wondering how did you approach the Agnes character? Yeah. So with Agnes, um, contrary to popular belief, um, some horror fans, I think because maybe either because they've never seen the original Black Christmas or because they did and they just didn't like it and they forget all about it. But they've seen the 06 one. And obviously, Agnes is very present in that movie, uh, played by a man, I believe. Um, and so some people have have thought that 
our inclusion of the character of Agnes in It's Me, Billy is is a nod in and of itself to the 06 film. That's actually not true uh, because the character of Agnes is first introduced in the original Black Christmas in 1974, although you don't see her. It's introduced through, you know, through the names on the on the on the phone calls. And also we hear Billy several times say, you know, uh, um, pretty Agnes, you know, it's me, Billy or oh, Agnes, don't tell them what we did, Agnes, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I can't remember now if if it is explicit. I don't believe it is. I don't believe it's explicitly said that Ag that in that movie that Agnes is Billy's sister. Um, however, I I think it's implied. You know, when the the parents come in, Billy, where's the baby? Where's Agnes? You know, and and I think it's implied. And we know that Bob Clark has said that yes, that that was my motivation. That was the intention. Those were my thoughts when I was writing that. That you know, Billy uh, was Agnes's brother, and maybe he abused her, and he ended up killing her and his parents, and you know, and. Who knows, right? Like that's the kind of thing he was thinking. So, so we thought, well, let's bring Agnes into it. But instead of going to the right, and I don't mean right or you know left in terms of any um, political sense, but but you know, instead of going one way like the 06 film did, we're going to go the other way and and make it serious. The 06 film is, I mean, you can't take it seriously, right? It's so sensational, it's so over the top. Agnes is such a character. I mean, she's such a goofy sort of monster. Um, we decided to ground it in realism and 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 make it more serious as opposed to goofy like the 06 film. So so that was why. I mean, we 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 wanted that connection there because we needed something and something that's important too is that, you know, the character of Billy, if this is 50 years later, the character of Billy, we don't believe ever got any help. We don't believe he was ever, um, I mean, he may have been locked up, but in, in terms of any sort of, uh, you know, help to place him back in society, he's, he's gone. He's, he's, he's psychotic. He's, 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 he's not mentally there. He's, he, he's not a functioning member of society and he will never be a functioning member of society. And because he never got the mental help that he needed, you know, what does, you know, if his mental decay was what it was in 1974, what would it have been in 2021? I mean, oh my God, like that's not somebody that can take care of themselves. So we thought, well, he needs somebody to take care of him. He needs somebody that, you know, that, that makes sense, that could be believable, uh, that maybe is kind of looking after him. Maybe she's in on it. Maybe she isn't. Mm, don't know. Mm. Um, and we decided on his sister, Agnes. And that's why she was introduced. So one thing that's really interesting to me um, about not only It's Me, Billy, but also I think your approach to horror movies is, so you're, you're a fan of the original Black Christmas and Halloween. And I noticed in the way that you approached It's Me, Billy, I, I think in a way, the way you want to tell these stories is almost like a campfire tale, right? Because if you watch something like Halloween, you could just uh, turn that into a campfire story, you know, and tell Absolutely. it orally. And I think you could do the same with Black Christmas. It's the classic, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. That's uh, right. And I think you do that with It's Me, Billy. 
And part of doing that means pacing the film out, the story out in a way where there's a slow build. Am I reading uh, how you view uh, what what makes a great horror movie? Um, no, you. It, mm-hmm. No, you're 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 right. I mean, you know, I'm I'm. Uh, I mean, it's not that I I don't enjoy the the fun popcorn silly horror movies like a, a Terrifier or a you know a, a a slasher movie. I mean, you know, they can be fun. But I'm 43 years old, and and I think I think I've grown out of that over the years. And um, like, if Terrifier had come out when I was like 17, oh my god. I would have been all over that and and then some and oh, this is the greatest movie ever. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? And that's no disrespect to the filmmakers because, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. I mean, that's a hell of a hustle that they did to, you know, throw that thing in the theater and it's $10 million and, you know, it's amazing. Um, but in terms of the, the kind of, it is. It, it's just not for me. I think I've, as I've gotten older, I've, I, I, I appreciate more of the psychological, more of the nuance, the theater of the mind, the, the mood, the atmosphere. And so, yes, you are correct that uh, I do like slow burns a hundred percent when they're done right. When it feels, it feels, you know, it feels right. Um, and it's me, Billy was like that. We, we, I mean, the original Black Christmas is a slow burn. We needed to create a sequel that felt like it was the same universe and it lived in the same, the same universe in terms of its style. Um, because if it's me, Billy had been, you know, a, a, a slasher, like just a, a, a modern day slasher. I do, in, in terms of style and tone, I don't think it would feel as connected to the original that it does. Now, look, there's no doubt that there are people that have watched our film and, the, and I've seen, I've seen the comments, you know, some people have said, Oh, it's not enough blood and gore. No, it's kind of slow or it's kind of, you know, and, and, and again, I mean, and that's fair, right? That's fair. It's not going to be for everybody. These are probably the people that also think the original is too slow. Um, But that was deliberate. We, we wanted to paste out the first half of it's me, Billy is like a, almost like a, a drama, you know, because you are, you know, you're being reintroduced and we only have 45 minutes to do it. So, you know, you're being reintroduced to these characters. You know, we have to know where everybody is. Who's Sam? Who's Justine? Who's Emma? Where's the situation? Why are they at this house? And so there is a lot of exposition in the first half of the film, but as long as exposition is properly motivated, because in movies, of course, there's always that thing, show, don't tell as often as you can show, don't tell. And that's, and, and absolutely that is true, but every movie has exposition. And, and as long as the exposition is properly motivated. So, you know, these characters are having this conversation for a reason. It's information that is being relayed back and forth. You know, maybe it's, it's information that one character doesn't know, right? It's not a character telling another character information they already know, because then that clearly communicates that this is just for the audience. So it has to feel natural. It has to feel organic. And I believe we accomplished that in, in all the conversations that we had, it felt it it was properly motivated. And so that, that first half is, you know, we're being reintroduced. I mean, it's been 50 years. What's been going on? Who's Sam? Who is she? How is she connected to all this and all that kind of stuff? And then after the dining room scene, then when, you know, day turns to night and we start to get into the nighttime stuff, then it switches almost from this drama to this horror film, you know, and, and, and shit hits the fan. And, and, and then of course there's the big climactic cliffhanger ending. So yeah, no, it's, it's true. I was just going to say in that regard, I mean, it's good that you mentioned Terrifier because I was not that into the first Terrifier film, but I really liked the second one. I think that's in part because I saw it in theaters. Uh, But the other aspect of Terrifier 2 that I liked, and I know people have complained about this, is 
it's two and a half hours long, but I really felt vested in the characters by the end of it. And I think right. it dealt with character development in a way the first didn't. And I think that's true with It's Me, Billy, right? Because I did feel connected to Sam by the end of it. I felt an investment in her because she built her up in the first 20 minutes. You know, you actually end up caring about these characters. That's right. Well, that's right. And 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 look, I mean, again, I mean, it's a it's it's a short film, right? It's a short, low budget horror indie film. And if we had, you know, if we had five hundred thousand dollars, then 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 we would have done the whole thing, and we would have had because you know some people had said, oh, you know, I wish there would have been some scenes maybe with Sam, Emma, and Justine sort of sneaking around the house and things like that. And we would have loved to do that, you know, nurture that that um relationship a bit more get those characters together more because everybody seemed to love them so much we would have loved to but again we're a sixty-four thousand dollar movie and so we, we there, there's certain things we have to do we got to get through it and of course it's just the first half of a, of a two-part story and um but you're right there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of building that we needed to do in that opening. And it's not easy because it can be, and, and again, I'm not saying it worked for everybody. I'm sure there's some people out there that was like, eh, a little too exposition heavy for me. Totally understand. I get it. But I think all things considered, I think we did a heck of a job at, at, uh, at, at delivering the exposition properly motivated in ways that feel organic and interesting uh, to the character and the development of these characters so you get to know who they are in you know in a relatively short period of time so before closing out uh the movie ends on a cliffhanger and as far as i know it's me billy too is going to happen yeah, well it's me Billy. well i don't know so here's the okay. thing so it's me billy chapter two has been announced uh it's me billy chapter one which is online right now um was always designed to be the first part of a two-part story now, the reason we didn't tell anybody it was going to end on a cliffhanger or, excuse me, tell anybody it was the first part of a two-part story is because we wanted the cliffhanger to have impact. And if we had said to people, okay, this is just chapter one, then you would have expected that it was going to end unfinished. Now, there are some people that I think in retrospect, maybe I would have done it differently but because I think some reviews of the movie have, I think some people when they've reviewed the movie have, uh, you know, knocked it down a mark because it feels unfinished because they think that that's just it. But, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, it clearly ends on a cliffhanger. Clearly there's intention to continue it. Right. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of a cliffhanger. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I was going to say real quick, it reminded me, um, you, you know, uh, Charles band from full moon features, um, the people who do the puppet master movies, mm. they're starting to do this thing now where instead of just releasing the full movie right off the bat, they show it in like episode chunks. Uh, so you're watching every week. So I actually think this method that you're using of breaking it into chapters can actually be really good. Well, it can, but I mean, I mean, the the reason why we did that really was 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 not because it was sort of a, a creative choice. It was because we didn't believe and think that we would be able to raise the whole budget to do the whole thing. And we were right. Because if we were to do the whole thing all at once, we would have had to have raised like $150,000. And we were right. We didn't even come close to that. We we raised 64. So, and it's because it's Black Christmas. It's because it's, you know, it's not, you know, you know, and, and, and nobody knows who we are or what's the level of quality that you're going to get or, you know, so 
we felt it was best to divide it into two. And if the first part, if we can deliver on the first part and get enough people liking it, not everybody's going to like what you do. That's art. That's just, that's just, you know, the name of the game, right? You just do the best you can and you let, and uh, you let the chips fall where they may. But we felt that if we can, you know, deliver something of quality and that especially black Christmas fans will appreciate, um, then hopefully people will like it enough that they will come back to support chapter two. And, you know, it's a business decision really. And certainly we're not the first people to do that, but, but, but that is ultimately why we, we ended it on the cliffhanger that, that we did. So uh, we have announced that we are in development right now on it's me, Billy chapter two. Uh, the script is being written right now as we speak. We're probably about three quarters of the way through it. Um, it's very exciting, but we need to raise the money. And if we don't raise the money, well, then there's no chapter two. Now, if I don't know what our production budget will be yet, the first one was 60,000 Canadian. Let's hypothetically say this one's, I don't know, 80,000 or something. Well, if we set out to raise 80,000, but only raise 5,000, the movie's not going to get made. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, if we if we set out to raise eighty thousand and we raise seventy thousand, well, then the movie's going to get made because we can we can cut where we need to cut without sacrificing too much of you know the integrity of the movie and the story and all that. Uh, and um, and we might be able to you know throw in some of our own money here or there to kind of make up some stuff. Uh, it all depends on how close we get to the actual goal of the production budget. Movies are very expensive, especially when you're making them professionally. You're renting all the gear, you're hiring, you know, all the crew and, you know, the locations and the craft services and the trucks and the production insurance and the, you know, everything that goes into making a movie. Um, so unfortunately, yeah, we need people to come out again. <laughs> so, so, um, and I think they will. I mean, I've I've heard from people saying that they're ready to support it again. Um, I've even heard from people saying that I didn't get in on the first one, but I'm definitely going to get on this one, which is great to hear. Um, but yeah, so it's it's technically it it is not greenlit yet. Um, it will only be greenlit once we raise the money to make it. And our goal is to launch our Indiegogo campaign uh, this spring. So I know spring is like three months, uh, but there's a possibility it could be around the end of March. You never know. So for people that want to see It's Me, Billy, uh, they can watch it on YouTube or I think it's also on Vimeo, right? It is. Yeah. I recommend that if you're just going to watch on your phone in bed or something like that with some headphones, you can watch it on YouTube. It's fine. Um, but because of the compression on YouTube and, and this is not our fault. Every filmmaker is, you know, at the mercy of this, even a Hollywood film, you know, is at the mercy of this. It's because there's so many videos being uploaded to YouTube all the time that uh, YouTube will compress the image. So if you're watching on your phone, it's not a big deal because when you get to the nighttime stuff and things are dark, which and, and they're supposed to be that dark, by the way, uh, but it's not a big deal because your phone is such a small screen that it that it that it still plays really really well uh if you're planning on watching it's me billy on like a gigantic tv like a 100 inch tv or a projection screen or something like that then i recommend watching it off of vimeo uh there's a free link on online if you if you youtube it's me billy go to the the uh the film and then i have a pinned comment at the top of the comment section where there's a link to the vimeo uh film and vimeo 
I mean, their compression is like next to nothing. So the larger the screen, the better the image is going to look. So that's what I recommend. If it's a humongous TV or a projection screen in like a home theater or something, watch it off of Vimeo. But if it's on your phone or tablet or, you know, your desktop computer or something, YouTube's fine. I also have to ask, because I know there's news that came out about it recently. Uh, you're involved in a project called Dylan's New Nightmare. And for people that are unfamiliar, Wes Craven's New Nightmare was like, I mean, it was Scream before Scream. It's the, the first it meta horror movie of the 90s. You have the actors from the original Nightmare on Elm Street coming back together. And Freddy is breaking out into the real world. And only Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy in the original, can stop him. So you're doing a direct sequel to that, uh, or you're acting in it. Uh, Dylan's New Nightmare, which is um, Heather Langenkamp's son character, son's character, is the main character in this new fan film. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the recent developments with it? Yeah. So uh, again, another high-end fan film is being uh, produced by Vincent DeSanti of Never Hike Alone. You got and, the original uh, actor uh, that played Dylan too, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, Miko Hughes. So uh, it's it's written and directed by Cecil Laird of the Horror YouTube channel. And uh, funny enough, the same year that we went into development on on It's Me, Billy, Chapter 1, 2019, Cecil had reached uh, had reached out to me and asked if I wanted to play Freddy Krueger in this fan film. And I was hesitant at first because I thought, well, I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to fly to the U.S. for, you know, for for free. I'm not going to like, I like, I don't know what is this all about? Right. You know what I mean? And then he told me and he went into it and I met Cecil like a year prior. Great guy. Love Cecil. I, you know, I consider him a, a friend hundred percent, such a great dude. And, um, uh, and he told me all about it. And, and he told me that he got Miko Hughes, of course, from Pet Cemetery fame and Kindergarten Cop, Mercury Rising, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. He had a stint on Full House for a bit. So I he always was a forget nine... he was in Pet Cemetery. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was Gage. Yeah, he was a little yeah. kid. Um, so Miko Hughes uh, has been out of the acting light for a number of years, but he certainly was one of those 90s child stars. And uh, and he was in New Nightmare and Cecil approached him at a convention in Phoenix and said, hey, I'm doing this thing. Would you ever consider it? And he's like, ah, maybe. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You know, send me a script. So he did. And the rest is history. And he signed on to do it. And I signed on largely because of that. I realize now that, you know, things are being taken seriously, but not just because of that, because of Cecil and because of Vince, his involvement as well, but also because of Nora Hewitt's involvement. Nora Hewitt is a special effects makeup artist. She won season nine of Face Off. She's worked, you know, she went to the Tom Savini School of Makeup. She's worked on Ghostbusters and, and, and you know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, she's, a you know, the real deal. And, and then they said, well, you know, we're not going to be doing a mask. It's not going to be like a latex mask or a silicone mask. It's going to be the full-on old-school prosthetic makeup like they did with Robert. So you're going to be in the makeup chair for like four or five hours. And, and I'm like, Jesus, they're, they're fucking really going all out, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, how can I not not be a part of this. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's as close to the real thing as you can get without it being official. So, um, you know, I said yes. And I went to Phoenix uh, a month ago and we spent a week shooting it and it's in post-production now. And some images have been 
released online and the feedback has been terrific and great. And uh, I think a teaser trailer for that will probably happen around February, March or something like that. They're looking for maybe a summer next year release of the movie. Um, it's a short film again, maybe 20, 25 minutes, something like that. But as in the same vein as Billy, now we're just chapter one and we're hoping to do chapter two. Cecil has an idea to do a uh, maybe three or four of them. Uh, so this will act again as like, you know, the pilot episode, right? First chapter. Um, and if people like it and it gets good feedback, well, then maybe we'll continue. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, that, that's sort of what's going on there. And, and it was a great week. Like, again, a very similar experience to the Billy experience in terms of like, you know, people were professional, on point, just made some wonderful friends that week. You know, just a a great time, and and was, was it laid back uh, on um, just out of curiosity, was it laid back the sort of filming process? Because I know you, you short the you shoot these in a uh, short amount of time, so is it like nerve wracking, or is it you know mainly everyone gels together? The well, I mean, the more prepared you are, the less nerve wracking it is. Um, what helped with Billy, and what largely helped with Dylan's new nightmare, and and we, I, I can't, you know, I. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this because this is a large reason why things were relatively relaxed is in the case of Billy, it is essentially one location. So as you know, the film opens on the side of the road with the girls in the car, but with movie magic, that's actually just about, you know, I don't know, 200 yards away from the house. Now in the movie, it's you're, under the impression that it's like, you know, a few hours away or something. And they've just pulled over to the side of the road to kind of, you know, have this conversation and, you know, decompress their, you know, their thoughts. Um, so, but it's all in the same area. And the great thing about shooting Billy was, you know, that house we rented for a week, the, the family that lives there, you know, went away. I mean, and they're used to doing this. Lots of movies are shot at that house, as I'm sure you can imagine. I mean, it's just, you know, it's ripe for that kind of thing. So they're very used to this kind of thing. We were just another crew that was, you know, uh, there and they went away for a week. So we had the run of the house for a week. Well, that the house became, excuse me, the house became almost like a set, you know, and, and, uh, and because I was, see, it was myself, Bruce, Greg, our DP, the three girls, Brian, who played Billy, we all stayed at the house. And then the crew stayed at a motel down the street. And so we could leave things set up. We could leave Dolly track set up. We could, so at the end of every day, we didn't have to strike everything down and, you know, and clear everything out and load up the trucks, which takes up a lot of time because you have to remember to factor that in when you are shooting, you know, when you have a 12 hour day, that's not 12 hours of shooting. That's 12 hours. Right now, sometimes if your crew is okay with it, or if your actors are okay with it, sometimes if you need a little extra half hour and everybody's feeling good and everybody gets along and everybody likes each other, sometimes, you know, it's like, you know what, don't worry about it. Let's shoot for another half hour to get that shot. And that's great. However, you are usually, you know, trying to block it in within 12 hours. And, and that includes your setup and your teardown. Right. I mean, so like, I mean, on a film set, you're probably depending on the, 
complications of the setup and teardown, you're probably only shooting for maybe five hours, you know, but, but, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, hurry up and wait as the saying goes. So it was wonderful to not have to worry about that. We could shoot right till the 12 hour mark because there's no tearing down. We're just leaving. I mean, there's a little bit of tidying up, but we're largely leaving things set up and then just going to bed and coming back to it the next morning. We walk down the stairs, there's the dolly track. You know what I mean? So it was, I, I can't, I'd, I'd be remiss if I said that that wasn't a huge reason for, I think the uh, relaxed vibe on set um, and how we were just kind of gelling and feeling good. And, and, and it was a similar thing on the Dylan's new nightmare set. Now there were two locations, one on a soundstage at a studio, but the vast majority of the film was shot in, you know, this one house. So same kind of thing, right? You know what I mean? It was a very sort of, uh, relaxed environment because of that. But when you're shooting a Hollywood movie, I mean, you know, locations and locate, you got to tear up, strike down to, you know, to all or set up, tear down. I mean, you know, you gotta, now, mind you, you, you also have a larger crew <laughs> to make things easier, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, both sets were very relaxed for sure. I was going to say too, since you mentioned doing the, the, having, you know, real prosthetics and, you know, real makeup effects with Dylan's new nightmare. I have to ask, because I've, I've spoken to people that have been in the makeup chair before, like, um, you know, Linnea Quigley and Linnea will always tell me, oh, it can be a real horror story. Um, yeah, you know, I think even Robert England has said one of the reasons he doesn't necessarily want to do a new Nightmare on Elm Street is because he's like, I'm too old for this makeup stuff. Right. Uh, what What was the experience like for you of being in the makeup chair? Uh, it was great. Um, and I mean that it was, it was a heck of experience. I mean, I've been in makeup chairs before, uh, obviously back in the day before I, I was doing my voiceover work, um, in terms of being a voice actor. I mean, obviously you know, like I said at the top of the show, I started as an on-camera actor. And so there were a couple of docudramas that I landed and a couple commercials I got where I, you know, I, so I'm, I'm no stranger to the makeup chair. However, um, nothing like this. And, and Nora is just, I mean, she's a, she's a, she's fantastic. She is great. And um, so obviously that makes the time go by a lot faster, but you know what? I mean, listen, maybe I would feel differently if I was in the makeup chair on a feature film for six weeks, five days a week, four hours every day. I mean, maybe I'd feel a bit differently, but on a short film in the makeup chair, few times, you know, that week, um, it was great. I mean, it was a heck of an experience to see it being applied, to see her work, her process, how she's going through it. And I think it helps to, and again, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but for me, because I'm also a filmmaker and I understand the process and I, and, and I'm an actor as well. So I understand the process. I, I understand many facets of the industry and sort of the, the process of making movies. I'm in the chair and I'm like, well, I know I'm going to be here for hours. So I'm not going to be a dick. I'm not going to be an asshole. I'm not going to be, come on, let's go. Hurry. I mean, this is what it takes. This is the process. You know what I mean? This is, you know, if you want it done right, you want it done well, she's a professional, I'll let her do her work. It, it doesn't mean it's going to be always comfortable, but I just, you know, we turned on some music and we, you know, I, you know, we shot the shit and talked and, and, and it was great. So now again, like I said, maybe I would feel differently if I had to do that on a feat on nine feature films over the course of like, you know, two decades. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm certainly not trying to downplay Robert's experience. I mean, I, I have no doubt that that would be a real pain in the ass. Um, but my first experience with that kind of thing 
was really cool. And 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 I think it was a a good perfect first experience to have because it was um you know, smaller scale, right? You know, I wasn't just tossed into a feature film where they're shooting for six weeks and and out of those six weeks, I'm in the makeup chair, you know, 38 times or something like that, right? Like it, I, I think it was sort of baby steps. It was a good baby steps experience for sure. And, and I was comfortable. I didn't, you know, I thought, you know, is it going to be itchy? Are the contacts going to be itchy? Am I going to be, oh, I wanted to get this thing off. I was as comfortable as could be, uh, which was great. So uh, just final question here, I guess, mm. uh, since we were talking about Dylan's new nightmare a little bit, I, I was, I've always been curious because I know you as the Halloween and black Christmas fan. What do you think of uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare? Because I haven't heard you talk as much about the Elm Street movies, but Wes Craven's new nightmare, even amongst the Elm Street movies, it's singular. It's very unique. It is. So when the movie came out in 1994, I didn't like it. And the reason why I didn't like it is because in 1994, I was 15. And I think it was just a little too cerebral for me. Um, I just didn't like, you know, I'm expecting Freddy Krueger and and the kind of movies we had up to that point. Um, so I, I remember renting it from the video store, Video Flicks, it was called. I remember seeing the boxes on the on the shelf. And I remember watching it home and being like, what? I thought that's that's Nancy. She, she's Heather. What, what's Wes? What? Like I just, it didn't, it didn't, you know what I mean? But as I've gotten older and as I've matured and gotten wiser and, and gone to film school and, and, and understand sort of, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not claiming to be an expert. Uh, but I just mean, as I've gotten older and as I've gotten wiser, I appreciate the film a lot more than I ever did. I don't know if it's a movie, like, I don't think it's a style that I would ever do, um, like, I don't think I would, because I think I, I, I like, um, I think it's the reason why I'm not a big fan of versus movies like Pinhead versus Michael or Freddy versus Jason. I kind of like things to live in their own worlds. And, and, and it's, I, I like watching a movie and pretending that, that, that is real life, you know, and that's, that's actually happening. And you know what I mean? Um, so if I ever was in a position where I had a successful series and, and, and it ran its course, I don't know if I would be like, you know what, let's do this meta thing where I get all the actors back and they're playing fictional versions of themselves. I mean, maybe I would, maybe I would, but I don't know if, if it would be a, a choice I would make. However, what else were you going to do at that point? You know, uh, he, he, he had this idea and it was greenlit and they did it. And I mean, obviously it didn't spawn any sequels from that, um, until now, but, uh, but certainly it was, it was, I appreciate it more now. I, I watched it recently cause I did a, a whole, um, series with the guys over the slaughtered lamb movie podcast, where we watched all of the Elm street films and, and, and talking about our likes and, you know, our dislikes and all that kind of stuff. So I watched it for the first time in a while, the other, like, six months ago, whatever it was. And I watched it again with, uh, with actually Miko and, 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 uh, Cecil on my channel. And, and I do like the movie. I do like, I, I appreciate it much more than I do now. If I was ranking the Elms, uh, the Elm street films, like for me, it would, it's pretty much an order. Like it'd be one, two, then three, and then maybe new nightmare, then four, then five. Like, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, you know, yeah. I like it. I do. It's it's not my favorite, but I appreciate it now way more than I did when I was 15. Yeah, I would just say on on my end, the reason I've always liked Wes Craven's New Nightmare is because 
you know, the, the original film, and I don't think many people notice this necessarily when they first watch it, it essentially is like a fairy tale almost. It's about a girl coming to terms with her fear um, and, and just growing up. There is this sort of fairy tale like element to it, uh, even though it's it's very violent. You know, it's a yes. horror movie and whatnot from the 80s. So, of course, but it does have this weird fairy tale um, vibe to it. And I think Wes Craven returned to that with New Nightmare, especially with the ending of New Nightmare, where you have her reading from a storybook to her kids. So I right. always like that it called back to the original intention of the first. Film. Yeah, no, that, uh, absolutely. In, in terms of the connective tissue, it's 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 solid. You know, and 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 it does call back to that, and it's it's really well done. It's really well done. Yep, for sure. I appreciate it now more than I ever have, and and uh, um, I I think it's an interesting choice to do a sequel to because I think logically, if somebody was going to do a, a fan sequel, they they wouldn't choose New Nightmare, right? They would choose something else, Part One, Part Three, you know, Part Four maybe. Uh, but to do New Nightmare, I think is a is a ballsy move, and and it's it's fun. It's fun for sure. Well, hey, Dave McCray, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax News. Can you let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work and maybe tell them about your YouTube channel? Yeah, so uh, as a hobby, outside of doing the voiceover thing, I, I have a YouTube channel. It's just Dave McRae. McRae is M-C-R-A-E. Uh, I'm on there and I do live streams where we're just, you know, talking movies, answering questions. Uh, obviously, a big part of the identity of my channel for quite a few years now was the Halloween horror franchise, uh, you know, talking about all the Halloween stuff. The Halloween I was stuff is sort say, of- are you going to have to switch gears now that Halloween ends? A little is, bit, uh, a, little a little bit, yeah. a little bit for sure. But, but th th there's always- things to talk about. I mean, you know, there's Dylan's new nightmare there. It's, it's me, Billy chapter two. There's the crystal Lake series, you know, the, there's always going to be something to talk about, but it's just, it's very cash, you know, very cash, just like hanging out, talking movies. And, and, uh, it's a lot of fun, you know, I've really enjoyed it. And, and you can find my channel. You just YouTube, Dave McRae again, McRae is M C R A E. And I, I should be the first one that pops up on Twitter. I'm at the voice man. Man has two ends only because voiceman.com with one end was taken. That's why I threw the two ends in there. There really is. It's as simple as that, but on Twitter, it's at the voice man, uh, Instagram, it's Dave McRae 79. And on Facebook, it's many things, Dave McRae. Uh, and you can follow me there and, and, uh, I post on the regular. So, yeah. Thank you again, Dave McRae, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dave McRae. Be sure to look him up on YouTube. He has a great channel there where he talks about horror movies, Halloween, Black Christmas, and more. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, happy holidays. Until next time. You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront 
the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.